Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. Is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano? They're running a strange program, y'all. Now here's Frank Morano. There's a story uh, that I've had on my radar screen for a few days. In terms of uh, talking about that, uh, I haven't had a chance to, but uh, I am going to talk about it not because of the incident itself, although uh, that's pretty interesting, but because of the sociological phenomenon that seems so common with this particular incident. What am I talking about? I am talking about an incident that took place in New York City, a fire inspector was knifed in the back by a stranger on a subway platform, not this past Friday, but the previous Friday. Now, I know a lot of you are thinking how terrible this goes to show once again that we need more police on the subways and that crime is out of control. I agree with all that. I agree that uh, the crime is a big problem and we need to do more. But Um, As far as I'm concerned, the interesting thing is what this gentleman told the New York Post. This gentleman, and I'm going to take a shot at his name, but um, I'm not going to be able to pronounce it correctly. So I, I apologize to him and to anybody that has a name similar. This gentleman's name is Taufik Ajazagiri. He immigrated to the United States from Nigeria six years ago. And do you know what he told the New York Post? He said, quote, in America, people don't care about other people. And apparently what he what he said is that while he was being stabbed, other strap hangers simply simply walked past him as he was being attacked. Now, for starters, you got to understand this is this would never be admissible in court. I am now repeating to you something that I read in a newspaper that was told to the newspaper by one person. This hasn't been independently corroborated by anybody. But for the purposes of this discussion, I'm taking this as what happened. No idea if it was. Maybe it wasn't. But I'm taking it as uh, this is what occurred. Quote, they were walking. They were looking away. This gentleman said of the three or four other riders who were near him as he was being assaulted by a you know vicious nut on the ABCD platform at Harlem's 125th Street station in Manhattan around 425 in the morning. Quote, people don't want to involve themselves with anybody. Quote, it's not like my country. If something happened on the street in my country, people would run to you and say, what's happened? What's happened? In this country, people look away and go their own way. So this gentleman, um, he lives in Brooklyn now. He works as a fire inspector for a private company. And he said he was on his way to buy a Metro card when he was attacked. He needed to get 12 stitches to close the wound on his neck. 
His sister, she was upset. No one came to her brother's aid. Quote, looking away is not good. The sister said when the incident happened, if the three people around assisted him, maybe they would have been able to catch the guy. I think the guy knew that nobody was going to come to his rescue. That's why he did what he did. If something is happening around us, we should help each other out. And I have to tell you, so I read this article four days ago, three days ago maybe. This article I have thought about every single day over the last three or four days because this is an interesting sociological phenomenon. And I've often wondered if this was something that was unique to America or unique to New York because you've been hearing about incidents like this since the Kitty Genovese situation. Now, I don't want to re-litigate the Kitty Genovese situation. I realize that it's not necessarily as accurate as it was first reported. But let's talk about the myth of the Kitty Genovese situation. And then there was another situation involving a doorman last year. But the myth of the Kitty Genovese situation is that there was a woman that was murdered in, in New York, I believe in Queens, And all of her neighbors essentially ignored her being murdered. And that's not exactly true. Okay, So I don't want to go and say, oh, this is what happened. Oh, no, that's what happened. I don't want to debate the Kitty Genovese situation. I want to talk about the sociological phenomenon of when a violent crime is occurring, what you're supposed to do. And I'm curious, at 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222, do you think that what this gentleman and his sister is saying is correct? That in America, people are more likely, when they see a crime occurring, to just keep walking because they don't want any trouble. That's question one. Question two is this. What should you do? Let's say you see a stranger being stabbed. You don't know if this is a stranger that um, got into a fight with another stranger. You don't know if the person stabbing him is going to stab you. What is the appropriate response? Look, I take the subway all the time. I'm on the train all the time. I take mass transit all the time. Uh, And I walk around a lot. What is the appropriate response if you happen upon someone who is in the midst of being a crime victim? Male, female, uh, stabbing, assault, rape. What should you do? And I would really love... To hear from immigrants to our country, and I know we have a lot of immigrants that listen to this show, and a lot of cab drivers, a lot of Uber drivers especially, that listen to this show, believe it or not, to learn English. That's why so many cab drivers have a unique pronunciation of maple syrup, thanks to this program. But if you're an immigrant to this country, do you find what this gentleman says is true, which is in Nigeria... Nobody would sit around and pretend they don't see you and look away as someone is being stabbed, whereas in America, they would do that. Curious as to your reaction. 800-848-9222. What do you think? 800-848-9222. I feel bad for this guy. And I also feel like it puts a, um, a poor image of the United States out to the world. So uh, I'd love to know your take on if you think this is accurate and, two, what you think people should do if if they come upon a situation like this. Let me tell you what's coming up. We have an action-packed show. Uh, Coming up in about uh, 15 minutes, I'm going to talk with Mark Shaw. Mark Shaw was an attorney, and now he's a best-selling author who has written a number of books 
about the Kennedy assassination. We're going to talk about this lawsuit to get the Biden administration to release some of the documents with related to the Kennedy assassination. And I want to ask Mark why he thinks the Biden administration is stonewalling this. Yesterday was Halloween. I got some fun Halloween stories. And it's a day where everybody likes to think about uh, being taunted by ghosts and being haunted by ghosts. We're going to talk with a psychic medium and find out how do you know if your house is actually haunted or not. So that'll be a lot of fun. And then I'm really excited about this. We're going to do a follow-up to our series on yeshiva education, where we're going to talk with someone who has the opposite view of yeshiva education than Julie Globus, who we spoke to last week on that subject. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Lamar in Manhattan. Hello, Lamar. Hello. Lamar, go ahead. What's on your mind? All right, Lamar, thank you. 800-848-9222. Al in Yonkers. Hello, Al. Hey, Frank. How you doing? Good morning. Uh, I hope you and your family had a nice Halloween. It was terrific. Thank you. By the way, everybody listening and being poised to call, you see what Al does? He's ready right away. He, he, I say, hi, Al, what's on your mind? And he jumps right in. He jumps right in. He's energetic. His radio's not on. You know what Al does for a living, actually? He teaches, he teaches seminars to callers as to how to call talk radio shows. So for, for <laughs> folks for wanting to improve their talk radio show performance, you guys should reach out to Al for some tutoring. Go ahead, Al. What's on your mind? Uh, thanks for, your com- thanks sure. for the compliment. Yeah, I just wanted to say if a person is about to get attacked or is in the process of being attacked physically. I think there's some truth to the study of the uh, Kitty Genovese uh, incident in 1964 in uh, Kew Gardens, Queens. I do believe that uh, a person uh, would be better off if it's only one or two people who are in the area because uh, they'll act quicker. But I think if it's like 15 or 10, a large crowd, uh, people will just take the uh, the view, uh, you know, I'm not going to get involved, let the other person do it, and then nobody helps. So I think there's some truth to that. So what would you do? Uh, let's say you, you were on the subway platform and you saw this, this situation occurring where a man was being stabbed in the back, probably by a stranger. I mean, again, we don't know the details. But um, what would you do if you saw this occurring? Would you look away and walk away uh, because you don't want to get stabbed yourself? Would you do something to help this guy? What would you do? I would hope that I would rise to the occasion and have courage to help the person. Yeah, uh, so would I. I would hope that I would be. I would have the the gumption and the onions to do the same thing. Al, thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Anastasia is in Astoria. Hello, Anastasia. Good evening. Good morning. Oh yes, I forgot. <laughs> I am so involved here. I'm listening to the program, and believe me, I put myself in the spot of that particular person. And the only thing I can say is God help us because lately we are facing so much of this. It is very sad what's going on. We need to have a mayor that will do 
better than what he's been doing. Putting aside the politics, Anastasia, I'm curious. One, let's say you see a crime like this occurring. What do you do? And number two, do you think what this gentleman is saying is accurate, which is in the United States, people just walk on by, they look away, whereas in other countries like Nigeria, they rush in to try to help someone who's a victim of the crime? Absolutely, absolutely wrong. He should have never made that statement. You don't generalize because... They are America. I am an immigrant from Greece, and I can tell you, I've been helped in many cases by other people. I find America very compassionate, very much compassion. Lately, things got in a, a little bit, uh, I mean, kind of plenty danger, but there are still a lot of people that have love inside for people. And I would never say that statement. In I believe he's. It's it's a little uh, too harsh to say that. All right. Well, I'm I hope sorry. you're right, Anastasia. No, no, no. I, I hope you're right, and I appreciate your perspective. And maybe it's just the the kind of people that are in the subway at four twenty-five in the morning. Maybe they're just more likely to walk away, right? I mean, that's conceivable. Maybe they're night shift workers. Uh, Maybe they're working early and they don't want to get involved in something that's going to get them delayed from getting to work. Or maybe they're coming home late from being out and they're, you know, a little uh, half drunk or something. Maybe, Maybe Anastasia's right. Curious, do you think what this gentleman says is accurate that in Nigeria this wouldn't happen? They would jump in and help you, even if it's a stranger. And two, what would you do? 800-848-9222. And I'm, again, particularly eager to hear from people that were not born in this country. So, so far, Anastasia, hailing originally from Greece, says no. It's not accurate. Americans rush, rush to rise to the occasion. Christina is in New Jersey, originally from Brazil. Christ, Christina, how are you? Thanks for joining us. I'm good, Frank. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderfully. Any thoughts on the uh, Brazilian election that took place over the weekend? Oh, Frank, sad. Isn't it sad that they put a criminal in charge again? So I, I, needless, to say, needless to say, you were not, not happy with the results of the election, I, I take it. Very, no, never, never. All right. So give give me your take on this situation where this fellow's attacked, uh, he's stabbed in the back, and he says in the United States, uh, in America, people don't care about other people. And in his experience, the folks that saw this attack were just walking away and looking away. And according to his sister, people don't want to involve themselves with anybody. Do you find that to be true? Yeah, I think so, Frank, because people are afraid. You know, especially if there's weapons involved, people are afraid, unfortunately. But in Brazil, they use, they even use their cars if it's possible. They are so tired of crime and, and people are getting, you know, bitten. And so they're, they're just hitting people with, the, with, you know, people get together and, and save the person if it's possible, even if there's, you know, weapons involved. All right, so you you agree with this guy? In Brazil, it wouldn't happen. People would jump in to help a stranger that was the victim of a crime. Yes. All right. Yes. V- very 100%. interesting. Very interesting. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. You know, so I hope that's not the case. And again, as uh, Al said, 
I hope I would have the courage to stick up for somebody, but I'm trying. I've never really been in a situation like this. And uh, I'm trying to think what would be going through my mind. If I see someone with a bloody knife stabbing someone, I'm trying to be honest here, right? I'd love to think that I would rush in to help this guy, especially if there were other people around. But, um, you know, you got to keep in mind that uh, you have a at least in my case, an 11-month-old son that you want to come home to, right? And if you don't come home because you're stabbed to death, then, I mean, that does go through your mind, right? So I'd love to think I'd have that courage, but I can't guarantee that I would. I guess it's one of those things you don't know that you're in that situation until you're in it. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to James in Pittsburgh. Hello, James. Hello, how are you? Well, I make a living. You know, I'm a retired nurse, and I took a uh, Forrest Nightingale oath where I'm a humanitarian like a cop. I'd have to step in, but the number one thing I think you do in that case is summons help before you do anything. Like when somebody drops over a CPR, you always summons help before you attempt to do anything. Reach out for help. But, you know, in the violence in Pittsburgh, it's so violent here, shooting and killing eight to nine people a day at least. You know what it is to me, in my mind? It's the right-wing news media that's promoting their agenda with these political ads, and they're putting pitting right, one James. group against the other. James, I, so I, much- I really w- i am hoping, and thank you for the call, and thank you for listening. I'm hoping not to make this a political issue. The right wing wants to blame the left wing. The left wing wants to blame the right wing. I'm Put, put aside all the politics. Pretend there are no wings, right? Pretend you're standing on a subway platform and someone is stabbed. What do you do? Additionally, do you agree with what this guy is saying that in America people don't want to help, whereas in other countries they do? So far, we have Anastasia from Greece who says it's not true, and we have um, Christina from Brazil who says it is true. 800-848-9222. Tony is in Florida. Hello, Tony. Well, good morning. How are you today? I'm, I'm hanging in there, Tony. Thanks. Me too. You know, I was in junior high when this happened. I remember our class discussed it. And uh, afterwards, not one of us could figure out the mindset of where they would leave a woman to die like that. You're talking about the Kitty Genovese situation. Well, look, the more we know about the Kitty Genovese situation, it looks like there were people that phoned 911. Um, But I'm curious if if you're on the subway platform and a guy is being stabbed in in front of you and it's a stranger, not a friend, not a family member. What would you do, Tony? Okay, if I was still a cop, you know, I'd shoot him. Now, I'm older now, I'm retired and not as physically able to do that. But I still have a good set of lungs, so I would scream, scream. my lungs out to scream. get everybody's attention. Scream. Okay, well, I, look, I, I think there's something to be said for that. Look, obviously you want to notify 911, call law enforcement, but again, a lot of times, especially if you're dealing with a mentally ill person that's on a stabbing spree, I think a lot of times this happens so quickly that uh, by the time you even complete your call to 911, the guy might have completed his act of stabbing and might be in the midst of running away. I don't know exactly what occurred here. Let me squeeze in one more. And those, are, if you want to keep holding, uh, we're going to talk with Mark Shaw in a minute. And then we'll continue this discussion a little bit later. Helena is in Westchester. Hello, Helena. Hi, friend. Listen, most people don't have the skills to go up there and 
do something physically. But the thing that makes me angry is that a lot of people don't even bother calling 911 to, uh, you know, to report something's going on. So there you go. And one thing I want to ask you, whatever happened with Carmen when he was uh, just a few months old, he, he kept on crying. Uh, what was what? What did you find out why he was crying so much? I, I don't know. I mean, he got over it. I mean, I, I think it was just him being a newborn. Uh, so now, for the most part, he sleeps through the night, although on uh, Saturday night he did find himself getting up at 2.30 in the morning until I gave him a bottle. I, I think it was probably just teething, Helena, but uh, he got over it. We didn't do anything different. He just kind of got over it. All right. Um, those of you that are holding, you're welcome to continue to do so, or you can call back, and if you're you're on hold already, we'll give Kenneth the uh, instruction to put you right to the front of the line. But I'm really looking forward to talking with Mark Shaw in just a moment. This is a conversation you're not going to want to miss as we explore why the government is so eager to keep the facts about the Kennedy assassination from coming to light more than more than a half century later. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents... This is Frank's Conspiracy Hour. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. This is a show where we like to explore a number of mysteries. And I'll tell you, one of the mysteries that has fascinated the American public since 1963 has been the truth about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Additionally, there have been a lot of questions about the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, if the official story there was an accurate one. And there have been allegations going back a long way uh, regarding the death of Marilyn Monroe and that perhaps there was foul play involved. Well, Mark Shaw, who is a best-selling author many times over, has been studying those three deaths for a long time and their unique intersection with a very well-known reporter of her era, Dorothy Kilgallen, and how Dorothy Kilgallen might have been a little too close to the truth. I became a fan of Mark Shaw when he wrote a book about Dorothy Kilgallen called The Reporter Who Knew Too Much. Since then, since he popped up on my radar screen, I think I've read at least three of his books. He's got a new book coming out uh, later this month, and I'm looking forward to reading that one as well. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome best-selling author and the author of the forthcoming book, Fighting for Justice, The Improbable Journey to Exposing Cover-Ups About the JFK Assassination and the Deaths of Marilyn Monroe and Dorothy Kilgallen, Mark Shaw. Mark, it's great to talk to you again. Hey, Frank, So uh, thanks so much again. I, I appreciate your having me on the program. Thanks. Uh, pleasure is mine. So for folks that have not read the reporter who knew too much or any of your previous books or who may not have heard our previous conversations. Remind folks who Dorothy Kilgallen was and what her best theory about the JFK assassination was. 
Well, it's it's fascinating. Uh, when I said improbable journey in the uh, subtitle to the new book, Fighting for Justice, that comes out the 29th of November, it has been an improbable journey. And I get a little bit of a, a, a chill when I say that. You know, I've written now six books that touch on the uh, JFK assassination and the deaths of uh, Marilyn and Dorothy. And uh, the other day, in fact, uh, I, I had the books kind of in my documents put together, almost 800,000 words I've written about it wow. and, and all of that. And so um, the reason I bring that up is because it all started with Dorothy. Uh, but it started when I found out that uh, Jack Ruby's lawyer, Melvin Belli, the, the, the rambunctious uh, uh, San Francisco attorney that I practiced law with in the, in the 1980s, as a matter of fact, uh, knew Dorothy. And he knew Dorothy because she was at the Jack Ruby trial. Uh, Bell, I was Ruby's lawyer, and I didn't know a lot about Dorothy at that time, but I wrote a book about Bell, I, uh, and, and I found out that, hey, wait a minute, at the trial, there was Dorothy Kilgallen. Well, who is she? Well, many, many of your listeners are going to feel just as dumb as I did then, and that is that we only knew her as a, a star panelist on the quiz show uh, on CBS every Sunday night in the 50s and 60s called What's My Line? Uh, they guessed unusual occupations. Uh, I think the last show that Dorothy was on before she died was a woman who sold dynamite, things like that. And and she she kind of was looked upon as the prosecutor there. She asked all the tough questions and everything like that. So the other part of that is that she and John F. Kennedy were very good friends. Uh, he had been to her home for parties. They knew each other on the watering hole scene in New York City. And uh, she really felt uh, a closeness to him because at one point he invited Dorothy and her son, Carrie, who was, I think, in the third grade to the White House. He made a big fuss over Carrie and letters he brought from his classmates and everything. And so when, when uh, JFK died, uh, Dorothy, uh, she, in fact, she wrote in one of her columns, and we'll talk about these columns, but she wrote what she remembered was a tall man uh, stooping over a little boy, uh, named Kerry and talking about his letters. That's the man who died uh, on Nove in November of 1963. Dorothy Kilgallen at one point was uh, uh, pinpointed by the New York Post as the most powerful female voice in America. Now you have to think Diane Sawyer, maybe Oprah Winfrey today, all of that, but Dorothy surpassed any of them. Wow. She had a syndicated column called Voice to Broadway, uh, syndicated to 200 newspapers across the country for the Hearst Syndicate. She had a radio show uh, uh, on, on uh, WOR there in New York City, listened to by a million people. And then she did, uh, she really got involved, uh, which in intrigued me to begin with when I started finding out about her. And you're talking about the book, The, the Porter Who Knew Too Much, all that's in there. Uh, she covered high-profile trials, like, like I did uh, when I was with uh, ABC and some of the other stations, but nothing like Dorothy did. Uh, the uh, Charles Lindbergh baby kidnapping case. Um, Dr. Sam Shepard, that became the, the, the fugitive movie. She was there. If people want to see what the respect was for Dorothy, go to the DorothyKilgallenStory.org, the DorothyKilgallenStory.org. You'll see her in the middle of the courtroom at the Dr. Sam Shepard case, and there's about 25 reporters around her. She was a true woman of integrity, and that's she had the best sources and all of that. And I'm pleased to say that that's kind of what happened to me as I started looking into Dorothy, her life and times, her death and everything. You know, it wasn't too long ago, a gentleman who runs the programming in San Francisco at the Commonwealth Club, where I've appeared two or three times, I'll be there uh, on December 1st again, said, you know, one of the things, Mark, that uh, you are, you're a crowdsourcing magnet. 
<laughs> Frank, I didn't even know what that term meant, but we looked it up. And basically what it means, I guess, simplicity, simplicity is that, you know, you throw information out there like you do on your radio program. It's such a great program because I'm sure then you hear from listeners and they give you information about the information that you threw out there on the radio. Well, that's what's happened to me. And so, you know, I'm very proud to say I think I know more about the JFK assassination, Dorothy and uh, Marilyn's death than anybody, the truth about them, because of all the, the sources that I've had, primary sources like Dorothy's. So I wrote the, uh, the uh, reporter who knew too much about Dorothy, her life and times. And the main thing that I found out about her was that, you know, unlike me, unlike any of these so-called experts, authors, the Oliver Stones of the world, the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas, all these people, none of us were there at the Jack Ruby trial where Dorothy was. She was right in the front row. And she listened to all that testimony, and she wrote these columns, the Oswald file must not close. Everybody else was buying J. Edgar Hoover's Oswald alone theory. Dorothy wasn't. And right away, I figured out that, you know, Dorothy was on on the right track in terms of what she was doing because she also was the only one who interviewed Jack Ruby at the trial. Mm. Belli and his associates set that up right in the courtroom behind the railing. And I have uh, uh, the, the uh, Belli's account of that. And whatever she told then, uh, whatever Ruby told her at that point, the first place that Dorothy went, it wasn't to stay in Dallas and look into Oswald alone. It wasn't to go to D.C. and look into the, you know, the government being involved. It wasn't to look into the CIA. It wasn't to go look about the Cubans. It was go to go to New Orleans and look in uh, to the to the man who had the greatest motive to have killed JFK, and that was a mafia don in New Orleans named Carlos Marcelo. And just to, to terminate that, and then we can go on from there. The reason that that is is because, as Dorothy found out, and I found out through my research, uh, you know, Joe Kennedy basically in many ways fixed the 60 election. They used the mobsters to help them. Joe made a deal with the devil. You help us win that election, the, the, the votes in Illinois and West Virginia, and we will leave you guys alone when we get in the White House. Very common sense situation. Sure. Well, what happened when they got in the White House? Uh, Joe pressured JFK to appoint Bobby Kennedy attorney general. And what's the first thing that Kennedy did, Joe Kennedy or uh, Bobby Kennedy did? He went after those uh, those mobsters, Giancana, Traficante, and especially Marcello, who deported to who he deported to Central America. Well, you can't mess around with those mafia people. I'll, I'll just tell you just a real quick story. Um, I was with Good Morning America, and they sent me over to interview a mafia boss's attorney in Philadelphia. Guy, the, the mafia guy was Angelo Bruno, about the mob getting involved in Atlantic City. Right. So I went over there. I interviewed him. They played that on Good Morning America the next morning, and the producers were so excited about it, they asked me to stay in Philadelphia and see if he'd talk to me again. I called his office. Um, I asked this woman, is uh, such and such there? complete silence, and finally I realized she was crying, and I said, are you okay? And she said, well, Mr. Shaw, I don't know if you know it. This morning when he started his car, it blew up. Mm. You cannot mess around with those guys. So you've got Marcello being embarrassed by Robert Kennedy, and what does he decide to do? He wants to kill RFK, but if he does, as Dorothy found out, if you do that, then JFK is going to come after you with everything the government has. But if you kill JFK, Bobby Kennedy will be powerless. And that's exactly what happened. And all of these other 
experts and all these authors and everything want to stray off of that. But it was basically start to finish a mafia hit because you can't mess around. They play by their own rules. Nick Pileggi, who's given a nice endorsement for my new book, wrote Wise Guy and Casino and all of that, uh, said that, you know, to me, you know, uh, Marcelo Sicilian, it's all about revenge. And so uh, that's what Dorothy found out, and that's when she got too close to the truth. I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, Dorothy's uh, untimely passing in just a minute. But uh, part of the reason I was so eager to talk with you now is because of the news regarding this new lawsuit seeking to force the Biden administration and the National Archives to release all of the remaining government documents about uh, President Kennedy's assassination, something that we thought was going to happen decades ago after uh, after they passed this uh, this bill back in 1992. As far as Dorothy goes, and again, there's some great, uh, great uh, books that you've written on this, uh, Collateral Damage, Denial of Justice, and to me, one of the best books ever written, not just about true crime or investigative journalism, but just one of the best books ever written, period, The Reporter Who Knew Too Much. As far as uh, Dorothy goes, do you believe that the people behind her death were entities within the government or someone associated with the underworld of the mafia? Well, it's it's interesting because um, I, I started out, you know, with, with the theories that I, I felt like with my primary sources that I could prove. I don't speculate in my books, Frank, just like you don't speculate on your show. You, you want to give people the best information they can, sure. and then they can ask questions. They didn't ask enough questions back in the 1960s with, with Marilyn's death, JFK's, Dorothy's, or Robert Kennedy's. They just uh, took it for you know, as a God's, a God's truth, what, what J. Edgar Hoover was saying. And so Dorothy was always very inquisitive. And I've always wondered exactly, um, you know, what she knew about in terms of the, of the possible corruption that went, back, went on back in the 1960s uh, when, when JFK died. Uh, let's just hit uh, what's happened here with regard to these JFK documents. Almost, I couldn't believe it. I wrote down 30 years, and then I had to change that to 40 years. Uh, since these documents were supposed to have have, have been <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, amazing. revealed, and so you go back through the presidents all the way to you know uh, George Bush Sr. and all the way down through, and each one of them always came up with an excuse. Usually, it was national security, but Biden hit the topper. You, you talk about incredulous. I call it, uh, you know, it's just absolutely ludicrous. Is what I say in the book. Here's why he said. We shouldn't have those documents now. Temporary continuing postponement is necessary to protect against identifiable harm to the military defense, intelligence operations, law enforcement, or the conduct of foreign relations that is of such gravity that it outweighs the public interest in immediate disclosure. As far as... Conduct of foreign relations, law enforcement... I mean, Come on. It, to Come me, on, Frank. That... It, it defies uh, it defies okay. any sort of credible test of uh, of, <laughs> of I mean, I can't believe anybody would believe this. Now, uh, there is this lawsuit and I'm wishing the best of luck to the Mary Farrell Foundation right. who, who brought this and is trying to bring these documents public. 
um, needless to say, it doesn't sound like you give uh, President Biden uh, his explanation as to why he wouldn't declassify a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of credibility either. But President Trump, he held some documents back as well yeah. when he was uh, he was president. And President Trump was someone that was always seen even before he was elected as sort of a conspiracy theorist. He raised the specter that maybe Ted Cruz's father was somehow involved in the Kennedy assassination. What was the Trump rationale for holding some of these documents back? Was that national security as well? Oh yeah, that's just the that's just the cover up blanket that you could use. You see, it's national security. We can't let those things out, even though everybody's dead from from what happened in 1963 and so on. So it, it's amazing to me, Frank, sometimes that people swallow all of this. And 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 you know, there's people that say there was no Holocaust. That you know, Nixon was telling the truth when he said, "I'm not a crook." There was no 9/11. There's no January 6th. Epstein committed suicide. Clinton was truthful when he said, I didn't have sex with that girl. I mean, all these kind of things. It's, it's unbelievable that, we, that we, we believe some of this. And, and it's the same thing with Biden. In my opinion, he ought to be prosecuted for not following the law. The law said that the documents had to be released by 2017. That hasn't happened. Now it hasn't happened this year either. And so it just goes on and on. And so Mary Farrell Foundation is a very reputable uh, JFK assassination uh, organization. Now, let me get, though, to, again back to Dorothy Kilgallen, because mm-hmm. it, all, it all ties together here. You know, I connected Dorothy, Marilyn, and JFK's death for the first time in collateral damage. But I've always been suspicious of what's the real reason that they're hiding these JFK assassination documents. And well, that, that, that was in, exactly my question. Yeah. yeah. And that takes us into what the shocking new evidence is in uh, Fighting for Justice that will come out uh, November the 29th. And that is this. Uh, I was able, you talk about primary sources and crowdsourcing and all that. Early last year, I was contacted by a man who had watched one of my presentations uh, about my books. This one is in Dallas in 2019 on Denial of Justice. Um, there's almost seven and a half million views of those up on YouTube, which I'm very proud of. And I hear from people all the time with these tips and everything. Well, he watched the one in Dallas and he noticed in there when he was watching, uh, the name, the name Dorothy Kilgallen. So he called me and, and I'm sure this has happened to you sometimes when you get this information out of the blue that you couldn't make up as to mm-hmm. how you got it. And so I'm sitting here in my writing studio, and, I, and I, he wanted to talk to me, so I call him, and he says, well, yes, Mr. Shaw, I might as well tell you. First of all, uh, I was a legislative assistant to, or I was a, an assistant to Robert Kennedy when JFK was in the White House. I worked with both Kennedys. I was involved with writing Title Eight of the, or Title Nine of the um, Civil Rights Act. You know, I was a, uh, a Yale graduate. I, I just got to got to be able to know them. I was the go-between uh, between JFK and RFK. And I said, well, gee, that's just wonderful. I'm, I'm most interested to hear about that. He said, well, the reason I called you, though, is I was the legislative assistant for one of the Warren Commission members. And I actually rode with one of those members to the hearings. And I was able, in fact, when I was waiting on that member, I was able to sit and listen to the hearings. And I found out that the, that the uh, member, that he said to me certain things, and those will all be in the new book, such as, uh, the commission members say this Oswald result is good for God and country, but there is internal corruption, and I don't know why. 
They already know the commission members about the Ruby connection to organized crime, but they don't want to touch it. The single bullet theory is phony, a clever, even ingenious cover-up invented by a staff member. Our new president, Lyndon Johnson, wants to cover up and move on, and so on and so forth. And there's many more of those uh, declarations by this legislative assistant. So the other thing that he said to me, which just blew my mind, I remember yelling and screaming uh, after I got off the phone. He said, also, Mr. Shaw, I should tell you, I knew Dorothy Kilgallen. Hmm. And he said, I was invited to, he called them soirees, but they were parties, at Senator Cooper's home, uh, and he gave me the address in Georgetown. I've since gone ahead and confirmed all that, and I've confirmed all the rest of this material, as people will read in Fighting for Justice. I went to the... Uh, soirees at his home, and I sat right next to Dorothy Kilgallen. And he said, I would call her a bright light bulb. She had the same sort of integrity as my boss. And I got to thinking, you know, remember we always have wondered. Uh, Dorothy uh, made a big splash with that exclusive when she got the Jack Ruby Warren Commission testimony uh, before it was supposed to be released, and she published it, and, and there was a big brouhaha about it. J. Edgar Hoover was infuriated and everything. I always wondered who gave it to her. And so I said to this legislative assistant, uh, is it likely that, that he's the man who was able to give her uh, the, that document? And he said, it's very likely, Mark. I really believe that's probably what happened. Mm. Wow. And then I've taken that on a little bit further, because with regard to this corruption that I will expose for the first time in the new book and will identify the uh, commission member, will identify the legislative assistant, the no secrets there when the book comes out. And, and basically, I, I really feel like that also that, that uh, commission member let Dorothy know about the corruption. And she was writing a book for Random House, and my belief is now that that would have been in the book. And also, I'm going to take it a, a bit further. I'm going to stretch it out a little bit further, and I'm still working on this, that, in fact, the, the whole situation with regard to the information that was given to Dorothy about the corruption and to the legislative about the corruption in the Warren Commission may very well be in the JFK documents that are being hidden by the government. And the reason that I can see, again, a common-sense motive, Frank, would be that, you know, I'm, I'm tearing apart the reputations of uh, President Ford, uh, the Chief Justice uh, Warren, uh, Warren um, JF, or, uh, LBJ, uh, uh, Hoover, uh, four or five more uh, members who were either congressmen or senators and all that, w with regard to the fact that the Oswald alone theory was just made no sense whatsoever then. It doesn't make any sense now. But I feel like that they may be very well in a situation as presidents that they're trying to protect the images of these men and that that material is in those documents. Uh, talking with Mark Shaw, if you want to check out the new book, you can uh, pre-order it now. You can go to MarkShawBooks.com to learn more about uh, his old books as well. Uh, the old books, though, are still very timely. The new one's called Fighting for Justice. And uh, Nicholas Pileggi, the author of Wise Guy in Casino, wrote investigative reporting at its best. And uh, I can't think of a better description that uh, that sums up Mark Shaw's work. It, what do you see as the likelihood, Mark, of this lawsuit filed by the Mary Farrell Foundation being successful? 
Well, you know, if you want to, if you want to make a, a bet, maybe they got, they got odds on this. They got odds on everything else. Now you can <laughs> bet in sports and everything. If you could get some good odds on this, I'd go for it. If I were people, you know, I think it's, I, I think it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a dead deal. I think you can, you can. It, it, I think that's what it will happen. I don't see how they can defend this. But what, what may happen? We've seen it with the Trump situation with the classified documents. We've seen it with the Hyder, Hunter Biden situation with uh, President Biden. What happens is, unfortunately, that we get into the courts then. And this is in the – I noticed this is actually in the northern district of, uh, of uh, California, I believe, not too far from where I live. But now it will get into the courts, and the government will bring all its uh, ammunition in to say, oh, no, no, no. Uh, you know, there's too much in there that we can't expose because of these ludicrous reasons that Biden came up with. Uh, but I'm hoping that you've got a judge with enough balls who will say, look, um, you know, you, you've got to substantiate this. What, what's in there that, that is relevant today that could cause all these problems with with uh, foreign relations and military defense and, and, uh, and uh, law enforcement, you know? I'm hoping that that's what will happen. So I'm betting that this may work, but unfortunately it may take a while. Supposedly the next deadline is December 15th. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we've got about, a, what, a month and a half, and I'm hoping the court will act very quickly Same on that. here. Mark, it is always a treat to talk with you. I'm very much looking forward to reading the new book, and I'm looking forward to seeing you in person when you're in New York. Hey, thank you so much, Frank. I appreciate your having me on the program. You're a good man. Thank you. Talking with Mark Shaw, you can check out his work at MarkShawBooks.com. Again, if you want to pre-order uh, the new book, Fighting for Justice, there's some great stories of how Mark came to uh, enjoy some of this information. And uh, there is some incredibly revealing new information about the Warren Commission and who knows? We might just find out exactly what these documents lead to that President Biden uh, is trying to keep the public from seeing. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. Too much of love drives a man insane. You broke my will, but what a thrill. Goodness is gracious, great balls of fire. I let you love what I thought it was funny. You came along and moved me, honey. I've changed my mind. This world is fine. This, of course, is the great Jerry Lee Lewis, who uh, passed away at uh, the age of 84. A guy who began performing at 14 years old. An incredible, incredible talent. Whatever anybody thinks of him personally. His abilities as a musician were absolutely without peer. And it's funny, you know, I, you know what I was for Halloween yesterday as my wife and I took uh, Carmine trick-or-treating? I was a farmer. And, um, you know, I still have the overalls on from my costume. But you know what Jerry Lee Lewis's parents did? They literally bet the farm on their son's talent. Elmo and Mamie Lewis knew their child had talent. By the time he was just nine years old, their little boy had taught himself how to play piano 
and was belting out songs. They weren't wealthy. So his parents decided to mortgage their farm so they could get Jerry Lee his own piano. So uh, certainly that was a good bet, and uh, I am betting that Jerry Lee um, paid his parents back. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. It was indeed uh, Carmine's first uh, trick, uh, first time trick-or-treating yesterday, his first Halloween. He had two different costumes. He had a pumpkin in our neighborhood, and then we uh, went to my mom's house, and he put on a pig outfit. The pumpkin was the very same pumpkin my brother wore for his first Halloween. And uh, if you want to see a photo of uh, M- M- Rachel and I as farmers and Carmine as a pumpkin, you can go to Facebook.com slash Fan. That's Facebook.com slash fan. We didn't do a whole lot of trick-or-treating. We just went to a couple of the houses in our neighborhood. Uh, we visited my cousin Deanna, who lives around the corner from us. Then we visited my my father, and then we visited my mom. That was pretty much uh, the the totality of our Halloween experience. And then when we left, we put out a a bowl of candy for children to uh, help themselves to. It's funny. We came back. All the candy was gone. So I think we did get a pretty steady volume of trick-or-treaters. But, you know, you can look on the ring camera to see who comes up to your house. And my wife remarked to me that a couple of the people that came up to the house to get candy were that, that were trick or treating were not children they weren't even teenagers they were adult women and i think they had a costume but still i mean there's got to come a point where you reach an age and that's it no mas no mas you're too old for trick or treating um but uh, it was it was a, a fun trick a fun uh, halloween from our perspective it, it was a little disappointing. I We were driving around from all these different places that we were visiting, grandparents and so forth, and I smell something. And sure enough, there was dog feces on my shoe. And I was wearing some Timberland boots because I felt like that felt fit better with my whole farmer motif. And um, I didn't have a chance to clean them off yet because it was raining by the time I had left. And... My wife didn't want me to bring them in the house, and it was raining. I couldn't really clean them outside. So they're currently outside of my home. But so I had to wear my weekend shoes to work here, which are kind of lounge wear. They're basically boat shoes. So the overalls that I'm wearing are a little lengthy. They're long. So I keep stepping on the bottom of my pants. It's a little annoying. I've rolled up the the bottom of the pants, but uh, it's it is a little irritating. But it was a fun Halloween overall. And uh, we got some good candy. And I think Carmine, he didn't really get the whole trick-or-treating aspect of it, but he seemed to handle it okay. 800-848-9222. Bob is in Hartsdale. Hello, Bob. Good morning, Frank. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks. I think I know why everything was is being kept quiet. How much did J. J. Edgar Holden know about the assassination before it happened? And number two... LBJ, if you remember, on the plane back to Dallas, I believe it was, with the wife, he was told, be prepared to take over the country. So obviously the Dems knew something was going to happen big. So I believe today, even today, there's there's the embarrassing factor that they're trying to keep quiet. Well, I I mean, that's similar to what Mark just said, right? But um, the thing that I don't understand, let's say you're right, right? Uh, Let's say that President Biden is trying to shield uh, President Ford and President Johnson from embarrassment and things of that nature. 
Why would Donald Trump have gone along with that? Well, that's a good question. Um, I'm not really sure. Maybe he, he decides just to do a favor. I don't know, because it can hurt the country. Uh, I, I don't know. But I, I, I really believe it's the embarrassment fact against the Dems. And we're going into an election now. And the Dems can't afford, can't afford any, any embarrassing yeah, situation. See, I, I think if it was such a blatant partisan issue like that, Trump wouldn't have uh, gone along with that. I think he would have loved an opportunity to embarrass uh, some Democratic politicians. So I, I don't buy that. But um, who knows, right? That's, that's why it's so important that this lawsuit is successful. Those of you that are holding, we're going to get to you. And uh, yesterday was Halloween, so we're going to talk with someone who talks with dead people in a moment. Your influence counts. Make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Do you remember a couple of months ago when it was reported that there was going to be a Department of Homeland Security disinformation governance board? A lot of people, rightly so, were frightened by that. And then immediately after the backlash, they announced that they were pulling the plug. Well, I think you're probably too smart to think that that was the end of the Department of Homeland Security's efforts to police what you can say online. And... A wonderful piece of investigative journalism in the publication The Intercept, which is a left-wing publication. It's as left-wing as can be. And I've just linked to it on Facebook.com slash MoranoFan, written by uh, Ken Klippenstein and Lee Fang. And the depart- this is what the article reads. The Department of Homeland Security is quietly broadening its efforts to curb speech it considers dangerous. An investigation by The Intercept has found years of internal Department of Homeland Security memos, emails, and documents obtained by The Intercept, as well as an ongoing um, you know, lawsuit, illustrate an expansive effort by the agency to influence tech platforms. Now, this work, most most of which remains completely unknown to the American public. It kind of came on our radar screen when it was reported that the Department of Homeland Security was going to have this disinformation governance board, which is a panel designed to police misinformation. What is misinformation? Misinformation is essentially false information spread unintentionally. Uh, excuse me. Yeah. Right. If I um, spread an article that says Hillary Clinton is actually a lizard and I don't know that it's false and I go out there and spread it, that's misinformation. There's it was also designed to police disinformation, which is false information spread intentionally. Malinformation, which is factual information shared out of context with harmful intent that might threaten U.S. interests. Now, while the board was widely ridiculed, or rightly so, it, they immediately scaled it back and then shut it down within a few months. There are currently other initiatives underway as the Department of Homeland Security pivots to monitoring social media 
now that its original mandate, the war on terror, has been winding down. Behind closed doors, and again, I, I want to emphasize, this is not Fox News or Newsmax or some right-wing publication. The Intercept is a super left-wing publication. Behind closed doors and through pressure on private platforms, the U.S. government has used its power to try to shape online discourse. According to meeting minutes and other records appended to a lawsuit filed by the Missouri Attorney General, discussions have ranged from the scale and scope of government intervention in online discourse to the mechanics of streamlining takedown requests for false or intentionally misleading information. It is a lengthy article. It is wonderful journalism. I have linked to the whole thing. I encourage you to read the whole thing. But let me give you a few takeaways uh, that the Intercept article highlights. So even though the Department of Homeland Security shut down this disinformation governance board, a strategic document reveals that the underlying work is ongoing. The Department of Homeland Security, and this is where you should be frightened, and this to me confirms what I feel like I already knew. The Department of Homeland Security plans to target inaccurate information on the origins of the COVID pandemic and the efficacies of COVID vaccines. Now, the problem with that is what we've been told was accurate about both of those things, the origins of the pandemic and the vaccines itself, it's changed. Over time. And so something that might have been considered false a year ago or two years ago might be accurate the more information we learn. So why suppress that? Why have it reported to the teacher of that's Department of Homeland Security? But it's not just that. They're also planning to target inaccurate information on racial justice, inaccurate information on the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the nature of U.S. support to Ukraine. And if you had any doubt about the marriage that's going on in this country between big government and big business, Facebook actually created a special portal for the Department of Homeland Security and government partners to report disinformation directly. Understand what that means. I post something on Facebook. You post something on Facebook. Department of Homeland Security says, well, hey... This fits our definition of disinformation. I'm going to fill out this Facebook portal and report it to Facebook. They have a special, you know how Bill O'Reilly, if you listen to his show or watch his show, he has a a special uh, subscriber email address where you get access to him directly. That's what Facebook has for the Department of Homeland Security. And I don't think that's right. And I I think this is really dangerous. I think this is... um, a huge step towards infringing on free speech. Now, I know there's a lot of bad information out there. I know there's a lot of misinformation, disinformation, malinformation. And you know what I try and do on this show? I try to straighten things out. I try to give facts. I try to give all points of view and then give facts that give context to all those points of view. And I wish more people did what I did, quite frankly. But I don't think the solution to disinformation is to have the Department of Homeland Security police it. You know what I think the Department of Homeland Security should be doing? Keeping us safe from terrorist attacks and other threats to the homeland. Not worrying about somebody sharing a meme 
having to do with COVID vaccines on Facebook. 800-848-9222. I find this really alarming, quite frankly. According to a, um, I mean, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, the nature of U.S. support to Ukraine, COVID vaccines, and racial justice. The inclusion of the withdrawal from Afghanistan on this is particularly noteworthy, given that House Republicans, should they take the majority in the midterms, which I think appears likely, they have vowed to investigate. You've heard people like Congressman Mike Johnson say this makes Benghazi look like a much smaller issue. How disinformation is defined by the government is not clearly articulated. So what does that mean? That means it's completely subjective. What I think is disinformation, you may not think is disinformation. And it it provides a huge opening for Department of Homeland Security officials to make political, essentially politically motivated determinations about what constitutes dangerous speech. You may view the world differently than I view it, and you may think what I'm saying is dangerous, and I don't. Um, I find this pretty alarming. 800-848-9222. You're welcome to weigh in on this or anything else we've covered. But I would encourage you to read this whole article. I've just linked to it on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Fan. I want to talk to you also about this um, killer asteroid, which may be coming towards the Earth. But a lot of you have been patiently holding. Let me get to as many of you as we can. 800-848-9222. Coming up, we're going to talk about how to talk to dead people. And then um, next hour, we'll talk a little bit about yeshiva education and get a different perspective from the one you heard from Julie Globus a couple of weeks ago. Tony is in Clifton, New Jersey. Hello, Tony. Hi, Frank. Just a quick thing. I followed the whole thing about the documents on the Kennedy assassination, waited patiently during during um, during, you know, the past year or so when when we were waiting. And I think the reason why. We didn't see anything. It's because if you if you know that George H. W. Bush was also part of the CIA, um, well, he was the head of the CIA. And he was in the CIA at the time. He worked in the CIA in his earlier years. Right? It's, no, he was the head you know, of the CIA. He was the director of. The he CIA. was the head of the CIA, and he really he was really the CIA was part of. That whole thing with Kennedy as well, although your author didn't talk about it, you know, about what happened to him and, you know, how everything was handled with the um, with that report. And I think because the Bush, George H.W. Bush's son is still alive, I really think that, you know, now we're not just dealing with people who have passed on, but maybe because maybe just because. His son is still alive and was a president. You know, that's the only reason I could think of that maybe Trump decided to hold back. Yeah, you know, you may be right. Look, obviously, this is conjecture on all of our parts. But honestly, given the hostility that both Trump and and to a lesser extent Biden have had towards George W. Bush, I can't see either of them really being willing to do George W. Bush a favor to um, to withhold any documents that may make his father look bad. Now, doesn't mean you're you're wrong. It's just it's not something that I can see from either of them. You may be right. Well, have a good night, Frank. Hey, thank you, Tony. Appreciate it. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Eddie is in Babylon. Hello, Eddie. 
Oh, my gosh, Frank. I think maybe it's a good thing I didn't run into at St. Patrick's Cathedral last Wednesday because we'd still be at Smith and Walensky's having a scotch and talking about all this. Uh, the greatest show, three things. Uh, about the subway stabbing, I think it's population density. The more the people, the more they care less. Uh, out in the Midwest, um, people are kinder. Uh, let's see. Um, Facebook and Messenger? Yeah, I'm banned from them for some reason. Probably my political views like yours. And uh, I was a nuclear medicine technologist at Stony Brook 25 years ago. I had a rather large Polish man, and he had terminal bone cancer. I was doing a bone scan on him, and I had an hour and a half to talk to him. And he prefaced it first by saying, Eddie, I did many things in my life that I wasn't particularly proud of. And this this man had crusher, crusher, huge uh, dinosaur hands. He told me about Rosie's restaurant, and this goes to the JFK killing. And he said, you know, Rosie, if she'd come over and kiss you, the restaurant might have been in Manhattan at Queens. He said, the next day you were dead. Then he said, you know, someone came up, Eddie, and they kissed Rosie one night, and they found her the lime pits upstate. And then he told me about uh, JFK. He said, well, he said, uh, I work for these people. And he said, people came up from Florida to kill JFK because, uh, you know, there was dissension between him and I think the families that Mark was talking about. And it was more to me like a deathbed confession. And then I used to get something called RT image, radio, radiological technology image. And there was an article by a radiology tech that showed films, the ones he took at Parkland Hospital, and then the ones that were let out to the public. He said, those weren't JFK's films, the x-rays of his neck, his skull, and everything that were let out. He said they were altered. Well, so what? What? Why? to what end? What was the purpose of that alteration? Uh, the disinformation to the public. Uh, I think the way the, the way the bullet wounds were, uh, you know, physiologically what happened to Kennedy. You know, they, they said, uh, you know, the magic bullet that went through um, – Senator Connolly, uh, you see Kennedy, Kennedy, oh, Gov- Governor Connolly, thank you. You're very knowledgeable. Uh, first, they said there were, there were two shots, one in his neck when he held his throat and one that literally blew the back of his skull off, which his wife reached back and trying to uh, uh, get it off the uh, back of the trunk. Uh, and, um, you know, you can watch that film, I don't care how many times, and uh, – you know, try to figure it out, but it looks like the man was shot twice. Well, no, uh, the Warren report did conclude that he was shot twice. The, the, he was the, shot the, twice? Yeah, that the, the, uh, the Warren Commission says that the single bullet theory, which uh, went into Kennedy's throat and then hit, hit Governor Connolly in the wrist, that was one bullet. And then the bullet that, um, that uh, went into Kennedy's head was the second bullet. So uh, I don't think um, – I mean, other people believe that there were additional shots and that, that mm-hmm. there could have been – which would suggest additional shooters. Uh, Eddie, right. I appreciate the perspective. Noble, right? Well, yeah, possibly, right? I mean, yeah. you know, again, I don't want to go through, you know, the, all the ballistics of the Kennedy assassination yeah. because, you know, we do that usually for an hour or two uh, as we get closer to the anniversary date. But uh, the acoustics uh, do su- suggest that there was likely a second shooter. And, you know, everyone forgets about 
1979 Select Committee on Assassinations. It was a congressional committee, a bipartisan committee, and they concluded, they concluded, Congress, not the Warren Commission, not anybody else, they concluded that Kennedy was killed as a result of a conspiracy and that there were multiple shooters. So everyone always cites the Warren Commission, and yet just um, you know, 15 years or so after the Warren Commission, a bipartisan congressional committee came to the opposite conclusion. But for some reason, nobody ever cites the work of that bipartisan committee. Eddie, thank you. I don't want to go down the JFK rabbit hole as, in terms of what happened. My interest is in... What happens? Meaning, this lawsuit. Why is the government fighting so hard to keep these documents secret? And look, the the theory that Mark Shaw gave, I think, is one of the more reasonable ones. We'll see. We'll see. And that's why I am hoping this lawsuit is successful. And I'm glad the Mary Farrell Foundation is doing this. 800-848-9222. Just last comment on the um, disinformation police a.k.a. Department of Homeland Security. Prior to the 2020 election, these big tech companies, including Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, Discord, Wikipedia, Microsoft, LinkedIn, and Verizon Media, met on a monthly basis with the FBI and other government representatives. According to NBC News, Those meetings were part of an initiative between the private sector and the government to discuss how firms would handle misinformation during the election. The stepped-up counter-disinformation effort began in 2018 following high-profile hacking incidents of U.S. firms when Congress passed and President Trump signed the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Act, forming a new wing of the Department of Homeland Security devoted to protecting critical national infrastructure. So from this is, I think, very interesting that these tech companies were so in bed with the government that going back now literally years, the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI and several media entities were having biweekly meetings as recently as August. Think about that. The Department of Homeland Security considered countering disinformation relating to content that undermines trust in financial systems and courts. The FBI agents, and this is all from the Intercept article. Uh, This is no original commentary by me, no conjecture by me, no speculation, no new reporting. This is me reading from the Intercept article, which, again, encourage you to read. The FBI agent who primed social media platforms to take down the Hunter Biden laptop story continued to have a role in the Department of Homeland Security policy discussions. Think about that. We now know Twitter has admitted, other people have admitted, that it was a mistake to censor that Hunter Biden laptop story. And yet the agent that did it gets to keep making policy about what's appropriate disinformation to censor. I mean, what do you have to do in your career to be wrong enough and or disgraced enough where the Department of Homeland Security doesn't go to you and say, okay, let's let let Fred handle this one. Joe, okay, you've 
you've done enough damage. Let's give someone else an opportunity. I thought that's uh I thought that was pretty alarming. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. We're going to talk with a psychic medium. In, th- by the way, that uh, you can't make this stuff up. You know what that FBI agent's names are, the, the FBI agent's name was? Elvis Chan. How cool is a, a name is that for an FBI special agent, right? All right, 800-848-9222. Uh, Marianne is in Queens. Hello, Marianne. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. How are you? Great. Thank you. All right. Yeah, my comment, first of all, was about um, how we react in front of a crime committed in, in public. Well, I will call the police. Now, the problem is that since 2020, things have changed with the help we are expecting from the police because those rallies uh that actually say that we have to defund the police. And uh, the fact that the police cannot uh, act appropriately to stop crime, well, is not the same. They they are afraid of, of getting involved. And the reason why I believe it has to do a lot with the present government that we have that is patronizing the criminal. These people are stopped. Uh, they can do anything in the street, and they put them back in the street. So they feel that they are protected. The public is the one that, which is the victim, has no protection. Right. So what would you do if someone next to you on a subway platform was being stabbed? Well, I will call the police. I will, will, of course, I will call the police. But if I see that a child is in danger... I will directly involve myself. But if it's an adult, to avoid the, it. you wouldn't intervene? No. I personally, uh, to grab someone, I I wouldn't. Because okay. uh, the other day, remember, they say that they they attack a, a good Samaritan. They stab him. So there's a... Uh, yeah, well, know, of course, a, a, lunatic, a lunatic with a knife, they, they're going to be pretty exactly. indiscriminate with who they're stabbing. And I, I don't think anybody can blame you for that. Marion, thank you for the call. Uh, before we go to Lene Starr, I want to uh, briefly just tell you about this uh, story that's been widely reported now. But it, And I'm going to bring this up with Dr. Sky the next time he's on the show. A planet killer asteroid found hiding in the sun's glare may one day hit Earth. That's the headline from Space.com. Only about 25 asteroids with orbits completely within Earth's orbit have been discovered to date because of the difficulty of observing near the glare of the sun. sun. But sure enough, astronomers have discovered a giant asteroid hiding in the glare of the sun that might one day cross paths with Earth. This is a 0.9-mile-wide asteroid. It is the largest potentially hazardous asteroid spotted in the past eight years, and astronomers have dubbed it a planet killer because the effects of its impact would be felt across multiple continents. Now, it is interesting to me. Do you remember the whole uh, DART mission that was supposedly just a test where they were going to divert an asteroid and see if they could do it. I said at the time that I suspected that there was something more dangerous afoot. It is interesting that we then learn just a couple of weeks later 
that this planet killer asteroid is out there nearby. I find that very, very convenient. Very convenient. And uh, I suspect that they knew about this when they were doing that DART test. So uh, because the inner solar system asteroids are so hard to detect, they are underrepresented models of the overall solar system space rock population. But uh, this is interesting that uh, that it's so close. Hopefully that NASA has done so well with DART, we won't have to worry about ending up like the dinosaurs. Am I right? All right. We're going to, if we do end up like the dinosaurs, perhaps Lene Starr can help whoever's left on Earth contact us because she is a psychic medium. I can't think of a more appropriate discussion to have in the hours following Halloween. Can you? Lene Starr joins us straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Well, yesterday was Halloween, and there's a lot of ghosts and goblins and spirits running around. A lot of us watching horror movies uh, that involve uh, haunted houses and so forth. Well, are haunted houses real? And how do you know if your house is haunted? Those are a few of the questions I have for psychic medium Lene Starr. Lene, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thank you, and good evening, and I appreciate the opportunity to be on your broadcast with you and your listening audience. Thank you again. Well, I appreciate you uh, coming on. I know it can be a, a tough hour. Now, uh, Lene, let me begin by asking what for some people is the obvious question. Is it really possible to be a medium and communicate with uh, with folks that have passed on? Because there's a whole swath of people listening to us right now that don't even believe that that idea is possible? No, that's an um, awesome question. And I am going to say that there are some people that are very intuitive and they are able to make the connection to the other side. And the ones on the other side, Halloween is a very spiritual time because Halloween, All Hallows Eve, it opens the portal to let the souls kind of come through to us more so. And people are really intrigued by it. And then you're followed by All Saints Day, which is today, November 1st, followed by All Souls Day, uh, which is November 2nd. So it's a trilogy of three 
spiritual days and nights that you can try to make the connection to the other side. And my message always is is that the soul is eternal. Whatever faith you have, whatever you've developed over your lifetime, I always encourage people to hold on to your faith because that that gives you the hope that you will have a reunion with your loved ones on the other side when it's our time to go to glory. Well, that's interesting. I want to ask you about that in a moment. When did you discover that you had the ability to speak with people who had passed on? Yeah, thank you. I was a little girl. I was four and a half, and my grandmother had remarried to a widower with four children. And, you know, I'm a little girl, and I'm kind of playing with these new people in my life. And they left me alone for a minute in one of the rooms, and a woman appeared to me. And the woman told me that her name was Mary Elizabeth, and she said, I'm the mother of the four children that your grandmother is now connected to. And she told me she had died very young. And my grandmother heard me talking, and she said, what are you, what's happening? I explained it to her, and she said, Mary Elizabeth was the mother, the birth mother of the children that I am now the stepmother, and she died very, very young from cancer. Is there a a special process that you have to undergo to begin speaking with uh, someone that has passed on from this plane? Or do you just have a conversation like you might have a conversation with someone that you run into at a park? Well, that's another great observation. When I'm going to do something like what we're doing or I'm doing an event, I always try to surround myself with white light. And I always ask for protection. I also ask that I can give the highest caliber of message to the person who might have the connection that they want to make. Sometimes I'm in a store. Sometimes I'm at an event that's not metaphysical. And I still pick up things from the other side. So you have to kind of temper it because not everybody is open to it. And, you know, at a cocktail party, I don't want to start talking to the other side because a lot of people get uncomfortable with it. Sure. No, that makes sense. Now, uh, for instance, let's say you and I are speaking either in person or via the telephone, and I really want to make contact with someone that's uh, that's no longer alive. Do, uh, Do I have to concentrate and think of a person or tell you a person that I want to reach? Or do you say, oh, you know, your second cousin once removed is trying to talk with you? How how does that aspect of of communication work? No, that's a great um, observation. Again, I'm going to say that I just ask a client, you know, that I'm meeting for the first time or a client that I'm seeing again, I just ask them to have an open heart and an open mind. And oftentimes, just that ability to be open to whatever comes through enables the spirit world to make a stronger connection through the vibration that I pick up while I'm speaking to someone that's trying to find, you know, a connection to a loved one that's gone gone to the other side. Well, wow, now that's uh, that's really I tend to be a uh, a believer in a lot of this, but I think you would even acknowledge, Lene, that in the field of being a psychic or being a medium or being both, that there are a lot of charlatans that have caused a lot of folks to view everybody that does what uh, what you do as being fraudulent. Would you agree with that? I do. I completely agree with it. That's a, a, a 
very, very good, true validation. And what I do is actually found in the Bible. It's called bearing witness. It's in the Old Testament. And I do believe it's Moses that says this. And what it is said in the Bible is if a stranger can come into your midst and tell you something that is true or becomes true, then you are given the gift of um, clairvoyance and you're connecting to the soul on the other side. So it is biblical. And, you know, a lot of people out there are genuine, but you must protect yourself and you must be careful not to go to somebody that would take advantage of you and and cause a problem for you. And I, I agree with you. There are those people out there, unfortunately. Every Halloween, a lot of folks get together to uh, look at the life and times, visit the grave sometimes, or just discuss Harry Houdini, who died on Halloween of uh, 1926. And he uh, devoted a lot of the last years of his life to exposing mediums and trying to figure out if it was possible. And ultimately, he came to the conclusion that that it wasn't. Have you looked at um, kind of Houdini's efforts to what he would yes. call debunk spiritualists? And what was your take on on Houdini's my, efforts? Yes, my take on it was he was the son of a rabbi, and he went to a psychic, and the psychic brought back Houdini's mother, to whom he was extremely devoted. And the psychic gave him the sign of the cross, and Houdini was enraged. He said, we would not have a connection to a cross. My mother was an Orthodox Jewish woman, and he went on a rampage to expose frauds. And and I agree. I think what he did was very beneficial. Sadly, um, when he passed away, he gave his wife a code. He said, if I can come back to you, I will say these words. And, you know, she took note of it, and he did pass away, as you said, at the time that you mentioned. She went to a psychic uh, a few years later by the name of Arthur Ford, and Arthur Ford did not know who she was. She was in an audience, and he came up to her, and he said, I have something to tell you, and it's Rosabelle, Rosabelle. Pray tell Rosabelle, and that was the code that Houdini Mm. gave to his wife before he died. Wow. I mean, uh, so did did that make his widow a believer that uh, this kind of communication across the plane was possible? Yes. And I do believe if history stands in my mind, I do believe she went to court to do an affidavit to say he had said that to her in a public event. But then when they finally parted, they kept in touch for a bit and he had to move on because he traveled quite a bit, Arthur Ford. She hugged him goodbye, and he said, I have a beautiful woman. She's beautiful with this beautiful white hair all piled high on her head, and she says, forgive. And this is um, Houdini said, that was my mother-in-law. She looked like that, and she always said if she could come back to me and my husband, she would say the word forgive. Can anybody connect with the other side? I think if you're sincere— And I think if you have a a desire to reach someone that was so special, and all of us have those people that we miss so, so much, you can ask them to come to you in dreams. You can say, give me a dream visit. And oftentimes they'll oblige to you. And I often encourage people to write their dreams down. 
in a notebook and you keep a track of what's coming through. And if you look at my website, LinneaStar.com, you'll see a lot of tips on how to try to reach the other side in your everyday life. And the other thing is there's something out there called an A-port, A-P-P-O-R-T. And an A-port is a sign from the other side. And it means something to the person who's sending it to you from spirit, and it means something to you. Now, today I was in a thrift store, and I found these little silk pussy willow flowers, and I bought them, and I heard a voice tell me to give it to a very dear friend of mine whose father just had open-heart surgery. He really, really, he died on the operating table, but he came back. I came home, and she and I went out for dinner, and I looked up the meaning of a pussy willow, and what it means is a continuing recovery. Hmm. I didn't know. I didn't know that. No, I didn't. She freaked know. out. I didn't. It means spring too. And when she was on her way to Florida, her dad was emergency ill. I said to her, "Listen for the name Stevens or Stevenson." When she got to the hospital, the doctor who admitted her father was Doctor Stevenson, and he took care of him for the two weeks that he was recuperating from the open heart surgery. That's really interesting and really, uh, really wild. Aside from the yeah. um, the yeah. Pussy Willow situation that you mentioned or things like that, right. what other types of messages might someone get from someone who's passed away? Yeah, you can also see a lot of messages on license plates. You might see a number that means something to you. And as you're driving along, you'll see that number on a license plate. And then you go someplace else and you buy your meal. And the amount that you're paying was the number you saw on the license plate. So if you're just attuned to the fact that they try to get our attention and they send us things. Now, the other thing is the cardinal bird. A lot of people see the cardinal out and about, and that's also considered a spiritual spiritual message from the other side. If you continually see the cardinal in the same spot that you've noticed it, that's definitely the other side trying to get your attention. Have you ever had a frightening experience as a medium? It sounds like a lot of what you're describing in the last few minutes is mostly pretty, pretty positive. Have you ever had something that was maybe kind of alarming? Well, I have to say that um, there was one instance where I went into an event. I didn't know anyone. And there was one gentleman that was a little on the dark side. And, you know, that happens. You get people that are more on the dark side of that metaphysical realm. And I said to him, who has the she-wolf? And she-wolves are part dog, part wolf. And they're illegal where I live. I live in Massachusetts. And he opened up his um, laptop, and he was the owner of a she-wolf. And so that kind of played into the fact that I thought maybe he was, you know, on the other side of where I am. And then I said to the hostess, I said, I don't think you know this gentleman. I think he heard about your event through the grapevine where you work, and he requested to attend tonight. And she said, you're right. He works in another building, but somehow he heard about the group we were doing, and he found her at lunchtime and said, could I come in and participate? So those were two very evidentiary Mm. things that I picked up. And, you know, he was a gentleman. He was very nice, but I knew that his beliefs were very different than mine on a completely different level. And I made the best of it. All right. I know I can imagine. Um, We're talking with Linnea Starr. If you want to learn more information about her, you can Check out her website, and you can find her on Facebook. The website is uh, LinneaStar.com, L-I-N-N-E-A-Star.com. 
Uh, Linnea, I uh, interviewed someone about a, a year ago, uh, Monsignor Stephen Rossetti. He is a Catholic priest, an author. He's written a bunch of books. He's an educator, licensed psychologist, and he has performed a whole lot of exorcisms. He, he uh, He's talked about how exorcisms are on the rise, and he is actually sanctioned by the Catholic Church to go and perform these exorcisms. And towards the end of our discussion, I asked him, I asked him, oh, uh, what can people do to avoid demonic possession? And the first thing that he said was people need to avoid the occult. They need to avoid trying to communicate with um, the dead through Ouija boards, through mediums, and so on and so forth. What do you think of what Monsignor Rossetti said there about avoiding trying to do what it sounds like you do? Well, thank you. Um, I am a Catholic, very, very strong in my faith. And I have to agree with what he said about the occult section. That's why I was mentioning the darker side. There are, you know, variations of what I'm talking about. And I do respect his opinion, of course. And I do feel that what he is telling us is valid. But I have to say that when I do what I do, it is such a thrill to bring back someone and to get a name and to get a date or to get a baby that hasn't been born yet. And to me, that offsets anything negative of a cult. I don't, you know, do anything with Ouija boards. I, you know, people like that and it's an entertainment, but I'm going to say, I think he's focusing on our soul and your soul spirit is eternal. And that is always my message that this life is temporary. And when we go to the other side, we will be reunited with the ones that we thought we lost, but we really didn't. But I can see the the gentleman's point of view, and I totally agree with what he's saying. It can go the wrong way. And I think my example of the gentleman on the sure. dark side kind of played into what the Monsignor thought. Sure. Uh, obviously, yesterday was Halloween, uh, the weekend before Halloween, and on Halloween itself, a lot of people like me enjoy watching scary movies. Some might be right. super scary, some might be a little campy, right. some might be comedic, and a number of films that people may watch on Halloween have to do with uh, haunted houses and things of that nature. Uh, for instance, in the movie Beetlejuice, Winona Ryder's character stumbles upon two ghosts that won't leave their house. We're ghosts! What do you look like under there? Aren't you scared? I'm not scared of sheets. Are you gross under there? Are you Night of the Living Dead under there? Like all bloody veins and pus? Night of the what? Living Dead, it's a movie. You know, if I had seen a ghost at your age, I would have been scared out of my wits. Something tells me, Linnea, that that is not the typical conversation that goes on in a house that's haunted. Are are there actually haunted houses, and how does someone know if their house is haunted? Very good question again. A lot of older homes, you know, the homes that are maybe 50 years and older, they often might contain the original owner. And sometimes when the original owner sadly passes away, they'll go back to the energy where they felt most comfortable. Some of them are stuck on the earth plane, and some of them want to be in the old homestead, and they feel very comfortable. Sometimes you can pick up a part of the house that's very cold, 
you'll walk into a room and for no reason at all, it feels like it's freezing. That's one manifestation of a soul spirit kind of being in your vibration. You also might see that your electrical appliances change. Your TV goes on, your computer goes on and off, your light bulbs flicker or burst. And that's also another electromagnet connection from a soul spirit to say, here I am. I want to make a connection to you. So I often say that um, you can invite the soul spirit to stay if they're going to be beneficial. If you're uncomfortable with it, you can sage your house with sage. You can have a minister, a rabbi, or a Hmm. priest come in and cleanse the house. So you're right. There are instances where there is a soul spirit that's very comfortable in your energy, and they don't want to leave the homestead. Interesting. Uh, talking with Linnea Starr, you could check out her website, LinneaStarr.com, or you could find her on Facebook. Hey, Linnea, I'm sorry to uh, throw this at you kind of, um, you know, spur of the moment, and I'm sorry that I didn't give you a, he- a bit of a heads up on this, but it's kind of just occurring to me in the last few minutes. Is there any way, and I'm as open-minded on this subject as anybody, but is there any way that you would be able to tell me anything about anyone that I know who has passed on? Well, thank you. Actually, I do get a gentleman vibration around you. So I'm going to say um, it's been pretty strong as we've been talking. And are are your granddads in spirit? Did you know your granddads, your father's father and your mother's father? Did you know them as a young boy? Well, I knew my mother's father, but not my my paternal grandfather. All right. I I can't tell. um, They're just saying grandfather. And he's showing me a watch. Did someone keep a watch that was his? Does someone have privy to that? He's holding the watch in front of me. He says, show the watch. And watches can mean, look what's coming. This is a timeline. But I am going to say he's showing me a watch. So did somebody keep a physical watch that he might have had um, during his lifetime? Are you aware of that? N- not my grandfather, but my uh, my uncle, my uh, Uncle Carmine, my, uh, my uh, great uncle, certainly. I have one of his watches. All right. Um, is it a pocket watch? Uh, it is not. It is a wristwatch. All right. They showed me a pocket watch, so I think the grandfather hmm. might have had one in his day. And they've given me the month of May around your family and you. Do you have any connection to May, birthday, anniversary, passing, anything well, in that, that was, particular Well, uh, that was uh, when my, my grandfather's birthday was. He was born in May. All right. He says, thank you. He says May 10th to the 20th. So, do you know the timeline of his birth time? Do you know the day? You know, I think he was actually the um, the the twenty fifth was his birthday, uh, but right. uh, it's possible it could be it could be I could be a little uh, a, a little off on that one. Yeah, that's okay, and um, that's just the time that the family was waiting to welcome him into the family fold. And he says, Mary, do you have anybody named Marie or Mary around you right now? Um. I'm trying to think. N- not at the uh, not at the moment. Not that I not that I can think. But uh, I'm sure if um, if I were to give some thought, that uh, there might be somebody that I could come up with that fits that description. All right, I'm going to say that I would take it. This is just me seeing it. Um, I, I'm going to take it as the Blessed Mother. Okay. So the Blessed Mother. The Blessed Mother means you're a blessing. You know, the family is a blessing, but he says, show the Blessed Mother. And um, why does he show me St. Patrick's Day, March 17th? Does someone have anything on that timeline around you or around him, do you know? 
Um, well, I, again, depending on uh, who it was, I don't, uh, not that I can think, but um, I, uh, I don't know, not that, not that I can think. It does, it doesn't ring all a right. bell. It's all right. It's a prophecy, sure. and um, something is going to happen in the month of March. Where is your um, beautiful birth mother? Where is she? Uh, well, hopefully she's asleep right now. Uh, All right, I just, I'm just asking. Yeah. How old is your wonderful mother now? She, I, I don't think she'd forgive me if I gave her, if I gave her <laughs> age on the radio. Yeah, yeah, you don't have, no, that's okay. But it just says something around your beautiful mother um, in the month of March. So it could be health-wise, it could be financial-wise. And um, he keeps showing me St. Francis of Assisi. Does someone have? A statue of St. Francis, he's the animal lover. So I'm going to say anything with St. Francis would tell me that somebody was an ardent animal lover during their lifetime. Do you have anything with St. Francis of Assisi, a medallion or a statue of him? I I I don't know that I do. You know, also, I just uh, double-checked. Not only was my, my maternal grandfather born in May, he also died in May. And it, that might have oh. been the uh, the earlier oh, part of sorry. the month that you were, uh, that okay. you were referencing, uh, okay. you know, as part of that. But I don't know, uh, aside from a lot of Franks in the family, I don't know that, uh, I, don't know that uh, I have anything, a memento of St. Francis. But uh, I'm, I'm a All big right. admirer well, of St. Francis, yeah. certainly. Look, look for the possibility that you'll get something between now and Christmas with St. Francis on it, and that would be an A-port from your loved one on the other side. And do you have a Joseph or a Josephine around you? Uh, uh, Several Josephs, yes, several Josephs. All right, well, they're talking about Joseph, and um, they're telling me one more thing. Are there twins in your family? Does anybody have a set of twins yet? Um, my grandfather was a twin, my paternal grandfather, but the twin died, uh, you know, around three years old or so. All right. I'm sorry. And I think that in the next two years, two years, they're showing me a set of twins that might Hmm. be born within your family. And I think they're boys. So look for that. And I hope, you know, that we helped everybody, your listening audience on the things you understand, take them with you. And on the things that come true, then you know that it was your loved one from the other side trying to make a connection. Linnea, thanks so much. I hope we can talk again in the future. I want to encourage everybody to uh, check out your website or find you on Facebook. Linnea Starr, thanks again. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you could give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's one 800 848 9222 straight ahead. The other side of midnight. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Hey, coming up in uh, just a couple of minutes, Elliot Resnick is going to be here. We're going to talk about yeshiva education. If you haven't heard our previous discussions on this subject, uh, there's been a lot of concerns about some of what goes on in certain yeshivas. And um, the New York Times did a front page above the fold story on a Sunday all about the failures in some 25 yeshiva schools, which are getting a lot of money in public money. So this should be alarming. Obviously, if you're a parent of one of the students in one of these schools, that's alarming. It's also alarming potentially if you're a taxpayer. And it's alarming if you're concerned about, um, you know, folks that want to have a well-educated populace. So uh, we had Julie Globus in studio, I guess maybe a week or two ago, and we talked about this, and folks said, well, maybe you should try and get somebody who has a different perspective, who is kind of on the other side of this. Well, we found Elliot Resnick, who's an interesting person who's spoken out uh, a great deal on this. He's going to join us in the next few minutes. We're going to talk about that, and we will take your calls on this subject. For those of you keeping track, uh, it was nine days ago when my wife announced that she had a sore throat, and I had lasted. From Sunday of last week, that was Sunday the, whatever date that was, Sunday the 21st, all the way, no, excuse me, Sunday the 23rd, all the way until October 30th, without a single symptom of a cold or an illness. And my wife has had this cold the whole time, a week she's had this cold. And on Saturday, she remarked to me, I feel like my cold's getting worse. Or Sunday, she said that to me. Well, Sunday was the day that I had my first cold symptom, a sore throat. Now, I wasn't ready to say that it was a cold because I, uh, you know, I, I'm taking all these supplements, vitamin C, vitamin D, balance of nature. You, you name a supplement, I'm taking it. And so I had hoped that come Monday I would wake up bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and I would be in just fighting shape. Lo and behold... I now have developed a runny nose. Now, I'm hoping that's the end of it. But I am hoping that this is not the same trajectory of a cold that my wife was on, where I have, it takes me a week to fight off this cold. So that's the latest. I'm now dealing with a runny nose. I am hoping to um, get some sleep today and uh, fight off, let my body fight off whatever germ my wife has exposed me to. We'll see where it goes. Hey, until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Have your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Don't look now, but now across the entire continent, it is indeed November. How exciting is that? November, here already. Before you know it, the year will be gone. I am thrilled uh, to be joined in studio by Elliot Resnick, uh, the former chief editor of the Jewish Press, uh, the author and editor of several books, including most recently Movers and Shakers, Volume 3. He's also the host of a uh, very popular podcast, which has a lot of buzz, called the Elliot Resnick Show Podcast. Uh, very pleased to welcome Elliot Resnick. Elliot, thanks for making the trip in studio. 
Thank you very much for inviting me here this evening or morning. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what, what it is. You know, whenever I leave, it's uh, it's dark. Whenever I come home, it's dark. So for me, it's always night. I feel like I'm a real creature of the night, like in Halloween. You know, it's funny. While I have you here, Elliot, and I'm sorry to throw this at you, but I was reading another uh, uh, Jewish newspaper yesterday. I get an email newsletter from the forward. And one of the headlines uh, was, was Dracula an anti-Semite or just another vampire? Do you have any strong feelings about that one since it is the day after Halloween? I do not, unfortunately, but I will say the forward started off as a socialist newspaper, so I wouldn't really trust anything they said. Got it. Okay. So uh, if they're labeling Dracula an anti-Semite, uh, maybe don't take that as uh, as gospel or Correct. as Torah in yes. some some, shake, <laughs> some sectors. Hey, uh, I want to thank you for bringing me a copy of your book, Movers and Shakers. Unfortunately, this is Movers and Shakers Volume 2. Not Volume 3. This is interviews on everything from Judaism and terrorism to politics and science. Uh, Tell me about – you got some great folks that you profile in here, folks like uh, uh, Charles Krauthammer and a lot of other uh, prominent folks in a lot of different fields, Saul David and uh, a lot of other folks. Uh, Tell me what this book's about, Movers and Shakers. So these are interviews I did while I was the chief editor for the Jewish Press, and on – with a wide variety of people. Like you mentioned, I have some political people there, Charles Krauthammer, David Horowitz, Ben Shapiro. Um, this interview was right before he became super famous. Um, who else? Katie Hopkins, who you might know from sure. England. Um, she's an interesting person. Uh, David Hazoni, the chief rabbi of South Africa. It just on, So on, on music, on politics, on Israel, all sorts of different uh, topics. And um, Elliot Abrams, who was in Washington, was involved with the uh, with the Bush White House with Israel. I think he said Ariel Sharon was the only person he ever knew who spoke English better than he understood it. <laughs> um, that was an interesting line he said to me. But um, yeah, so and people have always liked these interviews. Thank God. Sure. So I figured, you know what? Let me collect them in a book form and put it out and sort of let the reader know what these people have been up to since the publication date of the interview. And that's what I have that, here. That's terrific. You know, I've thought a lot about doing something. Like that, because I've had the uh, opportunity to inter- interview a lot of interesting people. And I know Howard Stern did something like that with his recent book, where he basically took the interviews that he did with some interesting people and then wrote sort of a, a note about the the context leading up to that interview and what those folks are are up to afterwards. Hey, um, we're, again, we're talking with uh, Elliot Resnick, if you're just tuning in. Uh, you're doing this podcast now, which even though it's only a couple of months old, a lot of people have talked about it. A lot of people send me some of the uh, podcast interviews that you that you do. What's your podcast all about? What do you focus on? I focus on fighters and firebrands on the political and cultural battlefields. So no middle-of-the-road types. You know, some people almost worship centrism. Centrism, I'm not too right, I'm not too left, I'm exactly in the middle. Well, I always say it depends what the topic is. So there's no independent value in being a centrist. I mean, if you're talking about I'm a religious Jew, if you're talking about belief in God. So one extreme is belief in God, the other extreme is paganism. So there's no value in this case to be a centrist. No, in this case, it's better to be an extremist. I mean, what's his name famously said? Barry Goldwater, that um, when it comes to uh, liberty, uh, well, yeah, extremism in defense of liberty is no vice. Vice and, and moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. Mm. So it all depends on the issue. Uh, so I like the people who are fighters and firebrands, not rhinos, not establishment types, people who believe in truth 
and are willing to fight for it. Now, you're unabashedly a conservative, right? Correct, yes. Now, I know some of the people may remember you um, for being kind of controversial regarding some of your commentary regarding the January 6th riot, right? Now, some of what has been said about you is that you um, defended the January 6th riot. Is that accurate? Is that an accurate description? Well, because we don't necessarily live in a free and fair America anymore, I was very careful actually not to at least explicitly defend the riots. What I said was is that the riot was precipitated by either a stolen election or an election that had so many questions associated with it that the left owed us an explanation. Three-quarters of Republicans didn't trust the results. I think 20% of independents, even 10% of Democrats. So at the very least, they owed the country an explanation, and they refused. They wouldn't give us the time of day on the media in the courtroom, and so people felt they had no voice, and so they exploded. But they exploded because the left committed the first crime. So every time when they talk about January 6th, I think it behooves us to remind the public why January 6th happened. January 6th happened because of a crime of the left. Did that have to do with your leaving the Jewish press? Yes, it did. Uh, Not your choice to leave the Jewish press, or was it? No. No. Okay. Well, well, you will. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to. Uh, we'll let sleeping dogs lie on that one. Uh, but and you know, I just folks may remember you from that. Um, so let me get your take on this New York Times piece. Um, about a month, I guess, about two months ago, September, New York Times does this huge article headline in Hasidic enclaves, failing yeshivas flush with public money, and you could tell the amount of. Time and effort and reporting, I think three different reporters the New York Times had on this story, and they spent more than a year on their own admission on this story. They said they interviewed the Times more than 275 people. They said they translated dozens of Yiddish language documents and analyzed millions of rows of data on what they describe as failing private schools in the Hasidic Jewish community. And I'm curious if you had an opportunity to review this article and if you did, what your take on it was. Right. So first, let me say two things. Number one, I, as a general rule, do not trust anything The New York Times says. The mainstream media, The New York Times, they lie for a living. Um, so I happen to have read this article because everyone was discussing it, but as a general rule, I wouldn't trust anything the New York Times says. Um, second thing I would say is the New York Times also translated this article into Yiddish because they wanted to influence the Hasidic community. So this was not objective reporting. This was reporting done with a very specific agenda in mind. Now, having said that, there has been a longstanding debate in the Jewish community over what kind of education we should give ourselves and our children. Some people say... And this, this debate has been going on for sure. 2,000 years. Some people right. say we should educate ourselves broadly, learn science, because the Maimonides famously in the 12th century said, if you st- how do you fulfill the biblical commandment to love God? You fulfill it by studying God's world. You see the amazing genius and wisdom behind it, you'll come to love God. That's science. Math, you could argue, is the language of God. That's what Galileo said. He said mathematics is the language with which God wrote the universe. Study history. See God's hand in history. Study literature, the best that man has ever thought and said. So you study these things to broaden your horizons, horizons, expand your mind, develop your mind. But there's been another school of thought within Judaism. And in the last several hundred years in Eastern Europe, that's been the mainstream school of thought, which is that you only educate ourselves and our children religiously and only provide them a general education to the extent that they need it to get along in life. That is a philosophy the Hasidic community follows. 
So they give their kids a very extensive education in Bible and in Talmud, and these are not easy subjects. These require tremendous sure. brain power, oh, yeah. tremendous analytic power. These kids, are, their minds are not wasting away on the side of the street. These are not illiterate kids, very literate in reading Yiddish and Hebrew. But in terms of secular education, you're right that most Hasidic yeshivas only offer very basic reading and very basic math, addition, subtraction, you know, multiplication, and division. However, in terms of practical life, you don't really need more than that. Now, I'm actually a proponent of the first school. I believe in of secular that, education. Exactly. But you don't, you don't really need much more than that for practical life. You don't need to know advanced algebra. You don't need to know the second law of thermodynamics. You don't need to know Newton's three laws of motion. You don't need to know about the Napoleonic Wars in order to succeed in life. I just wrote a PhD recently on Saul Bloom, who was one of the most powerful members of Congress during World War II. He grew up in San Francisco in the 1870s. He went to school for one day in his life. And very successful congressman, and not a genius. So for most things you don't need, you need street smarts, you need willpower, and that's especially true in the inter- inter- internet age. And so that's what the Hasidic community does. Now, again, I don't believe in that. And in addition to the, to, the, to the reasons I gave you before, I think many people have talents and skills that won't be developed unless they have a broader education. However, I can try to convince them that they're wrong. I, try, I can try to influence them. Who am I, though, to force their education down their, thro- their throats. You wouldn't like if I told you that you have to educate your child the way I want you to educate him. Sure. So who are you to, ed- to tell them they have to educate their children according to the way you want them to? Yeah, I'll that, just, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, I'll just end with, with one thing. I and most religious Jews consider it a crime, almost, almost child abuse, not to raise your kid to believe in God. And yet, um, you know, you're on WABC radio, you're conservative, I'm assuming you believe in God, but supposing you didn't, supposing you want to raise your kid as an atheist, I would think that's a, a religious crime, a moral crime, a crime against his future happiness. However, imagine you lived in a district where, where we were the majority, and we passed a law, you have to raise your kid to believe in God. You would say, that's a tyrannical law, that's not America, that's not freedom. And so that's all the Hasidim ask, just like you don't want... That you won't, you wouldn't want to be forced to raise your kid according to their beliefs. Don't force them to raise their kids according to your beliefs. Uh, all that sounds uh, very reasonable. I uh, can't argue with any of that. I, I mean, the the example that you gave, I think, is such an interesting one of. Uh, raising a child as an atheist. And the reason you can do that in America is because the First Amendment to the Constitution gives you that right. In in New York, uh, there's also a New York State Constitution. And in New York, the New York State Constitution guarantees every child, irrespective of their, their faith, the right to a sound, basic education up to eighth grade. Now, the proponents of secular education say that that right in the New York State Constitution, it, that guarantees them the right to at least know the basics when it comes to math, science, and English. But uh, putting that aside, folks that would support at least knowing the basics of a secular education, they would say that if you deny a whole bunch of children, uh, boys mainly, the the opportunity to have this basis of secular education, you're condemning them to a, a lifetime potentially of of poverty. Is that is that fair? Do you agree with that? I don't really agree with that. I mean, again, in the business world, you don't really need to know very much to, to succeed in, in business. You really don't. There are Hasidim who are, who are very wealthy on 47th Street, the Diamond District, because to be a successful diamond merchant, you don't need to know advanced algebra or science or history. I mean, again, I'm for these things. I sure, believe understood, in, understood. But you don't need it to succeed in life for most people. Again, there are some who will be left behind. It's true, but again, I don't think it's up to us to force our beliefs down their throats. Well, and a lot of, even the critics of um, the, some of these yeshivas are quick to point out that a lot of yeshivas 
do a great job uh, teaching secular education. And, and a lot of, um, you know, a lot of them are models of academic excellence. Uh, so I want to be uh, very, very clear that uh, we're not talking about all Hasidic yeshivas, even the critics of what goes on here. I mean, I can't speak for the Times, but the critics that we've spoken to on this program, they're not talking about all um, Hasidic yeshivas. Julie Globus was on this show She's an attorney. She's one of the critics that I'm uh, talking about. She talked about some of the problems with yeshiva education. Look, it's not every yeshiva, so I don't I don't want people to think I'm. This is a global every yeshiva and generalizing. But the yeshi- the yeshivas that were looked at, there were 28 of them, I believe, in that story. Um, they they teach nothing of as far as secular subjects. They don't teach science. They don't teach math, and they don't teach English. And then forget about the civic studies. There were a number of of journalists who who wrote about this in 2014, 2015. JTA came out with a huge article, and they too didn't get their vindication until the New York Times really picked up on this issue. And obviously, the New York Times had to, had a sensitive topic to subject to, to to deal with. But you know, and and claims of anti semitism are just nonsense because the the the, the per- people who did the article were themselves Jewish. And yes, there is a, a systemic educational neglect amongst many of these yeshivas, and their children are being neglected of you know a fair and appropriate public education of FAPE, which is what's used in in New York lexicon. Any any reaction to Julie Globus's comments there? I mean, I'm not Hasidic. I didn't go to a Hasidic yeshiva, so I don't know necessarily exactly what happens in every single Hasidic yeshiva. I did speak to a friend of mine who taught in Satmer. Satmer is one of the most extreme Hasidic groups, mm. and he was assigned to teach, actually, basic reading and basic math. And I think it was twice a week for an hour or an hour and a half. So, I mean, again, I don't know every single school. I do know some schools don't teach it, but it's my impression that most schools have at least some sort of basic reading and basic math. So education. should those schools, for instance, the schools that don't teach it, should those schools, your view is that they should teach it, but they shouldn't be mandated to teach it? Correct. Okay. That's correct. Well, that's, uh, I mean, I guess uh, – uh, but then I guess the problem is – or the question I should, ask, I should say is doesn't New York state law require – that they should have to know at least something about math and science. Right. So I would say that New York's law should be overturned. But I also will say when you have a state law, that means you have to have a state interest. The question is, what is the state's interest in Hasidic children being educated? So you could come up with three or four reasons. One of the main ones people say is, and Thomas Jefferson apparently said it, that, and this was decided by the Supreme Court, that you need to have an informed citizenry in order to have a properly functioning democracy. But to that, I will say, Hasidim, there's no shortage of political knowledge among Hasidim. They love talk radio, by the way. I know. I, we have a lot of listeners <laughs> okay, in the Hasidic okay. community. Absolutely. Exactly. They're much more well-informed about politics than a lot of public school kids are. So, you know, that's, that's not an issue in terms of them being an informed citizenry and, and voting properly and voting based on knowledge. And in terms of being good citizens, that was another and by the way, originally compulsory education laws two or three hundred years ago was mostly religious. They didn't want kids to grow up basically wild savages. Sure. So we have to give them a very basic religious education to make sure they have some religious knowledge and some moral knowledge. Hasidim, Orthodox Jews in general, are pretty good, decent citizens. Their crime rate is almost non-existent in terms of you know murders yeah, and, and rapes, violent right. crime. Right. You don't see them stabbing strangers on the subway. Exactly. So in terms of producing proper good citizens. The education is not a problem either. The only argument you really could have is that somehow there's a state interest in, these, in them having an education so that they're not stuck in, in a cycle of poverty. But even there, I think the argument is kind of weak. I mean, the cycle of poverty, I think, has a lot more to do with the fact that they have 10 children per family and they have to pay for their own education. It's not, it's not paid for by the government. 
I, rather than the lack of education. No doubt some people suffer. No doubt people, some people would have been more wealthy had they had education. But as a general matter, I don't think that's a huge problem. Well, so it's interesting that you brought that up because it was not something that uh, that I had thought of before a caller brought it up, meaning the size of the large families being a, a being the reason for the poverty in communities like uh, Curious Joel and others, not necessarily because the people, the adults, uh, the breadwinners are uneducated. Um, do you think that the government should subsidize large families? I know in Israel they do something like that. Um, I think it's a very interesting idea. I, I, I'm of two minds on that. I used to be very much a libertarian, and Tucker Carlson has, has convinced me a little bit to be more of a conservative than a libertarian. So generally speaking, I'm, I'm against the government interfering in these kinds of things. Um, but Tucker always points out that the Hungarian government apparently um, subsidizes large families. I think in Hungary, after four children, you don't have to pay income tax for the rest of your life. Um, and I think Israel does something similar, unless correct me if I'm, I'm wrong. It's possible. I'm, not, I'm just not sure. I apologize. But um, certainly you can make an argument from a conservative point of view that large families are good for the vibrancy and the health of a society. So from, from a conservative point of view, that is something we probably should subsidize. And, and in any event, we don't live in a libertarian government. We're spending money left and right and all sorts of stuff. So if you're already spending money, maybe spend money on that too. After all, we spend money for people not to have children, for people to, to have abortion. So if you're going to spend money, reproductive rights nowadays is the right not to reproduce. So if you're going to spend money for people not to reproduce, maybe spend money for people to reproduce. Uh, 800-848-9222. Ellie Elliot Resnick is here. If you have a question or you want to make a comment on anything that we have talked about, uh, we're going to continue with uh, Elliot in just a moment. His book is Movers and Shakers, Volume 3. You can also uh, search the Elliot Resnick Show podcast wherever wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, you can also check out his website. It's under construction, uh, but it's 1vs450.com. That's 1vs450.com. We'll continue in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Way up The great Johnny Horton singing North to Alaska. This is our first week airing uh, in Alaska. Uh, Very, very pleased to be airing in Anchorage, a a terrific talk station in uh, in Anchorage um, that we're delighted uh, to be a part of. And uh, that film, North to Alaska... Uh, with John Wayne is just a classic. And a big shout-out to all of our friends over at KBWR. Excuse me, KBYR. KBWR is the station from Northern Exposure. But uh, we're really thrilled to be on in uh, in Alaska. My guest uh, is Elliot Resnick. Elliot Resnick is an author. He is the former chief editor of the Jewish Press. He uh, has written a book called Movers and Shakers, actually three volumes of a book called Movers and uh, and Shakers. We're talking a little bit about uh, the uh, controversy involving the New York Times story on yeshiva education and so forth and some some related 
issues. Hey, uh, Elliot, what's the best way for people to get your books if people want to check out Movers and Shakers? Amazon would be the best option. Amazon. Say. So they could just search your last name, uh, Resnick, or just put in Movers and Shakers, and it'll come up there. With my name, correct, yes. Okay. 800-848-9222. Let me also uh, get your take on this one story. Uh, a Hasidic school, not that you're, uh, and then you've been very clear that you're not the spokesman for all of Hasidim, and I'm not trying to uh, paint you that way, but a lot of folks, uh, because we did do this subject a week or two ago, they did send me this article when it came out uh, that a Hasidic school, Central United Talmudic uh, Academy, which operates the largest all-boys yeshiva in New York State, acknowledged illegally diverting money, and now they're going to be paying $8 million after admitting to this widespread fraud. Some of the critics of Hasidic yeshiva's education they say that this kind of conduct is much more widespread than it should be. Any reaction to that story at all? Well, again, with a proviso that I don't trust a word that the New York Times says, I, nowadays I operate under the maxim voiced by Mark Twain, which is that it's better to be uninformed than misinformed. But assuming that the basic facts of that story are true, I cannot condone it. The Bible says stay far away from anything false. So if you're lying and cheating to get money from the government, you have not stayed away from anything false. You have violated not only American law, but you violated Jewish law, hence divine law. So I'm not going to excuse it whatsoever, but I think it's important to me perhaps explain a little bit their point of view and share a little, little bit of their perspective. And here's what I would say. America of 2022 is not the America of 1952. America of 1952, three-quarters of American citizens believed that the American government does the right thing all the time or most of the time. Today, the number is 20%. In 1952 also, government was much, much, much smaller. Today, the government spends billions and billions and billions of dollars. And to what end? They spend billions of dollars in education. New York City spends $28,000 per student. The national average is $12,000. And what does New York have for it? Their scores are roughly in the middle of the batch, so not better than anyone else's. 27% of New York City Public school students do not read at proficiency level at eighth grade. Among black students, that's 14%. And this is after spending billions of dollars. The welfare state also, billions of dollars. To what end? Not only is it wasted money, it actually does harm. Many conservatives have pointed out that the black out-of-wedlock rate is over 70% today, was only a little bit over 20% 50, 60 years ago. A 50% increase in 50, 60 years. Why? Many conservatives have pointed out because the welfare state allowed that to happen. Because a woman could not literally afford to have a baby out of wedlock 60 years ago. How is she going to raise the child? Mm. Today she just gets the money from the government. And there also was social pressure on the men not to impregnate the women. Or if you're going to impregnate them to marry them because otherwise how is she going to be able to raise the child today there's no pressure on the man almost no pressure on the woman because she could afford to have the children without the man just rely on the government heather mcdonald in her book the burden of bad ideas she opens it up by saying she once asked a lady on food stamps what would you do if you didn't have food stamps from the government and the lady said i would get a husband so the welfare state has literally ruined the family. So a lot of billions going to waste and billions making things worse, destroying the black family and destroying other families. So Hasidim see this state of affairs and they say, look, all, this, all these billions of dollars are going to all these useless causes and actually bad causes. Let me take a chunk of the pie. Mm. 
And I'll, I, I will at least use it for a good cause. Now, again, I'm not excusing it. Right. I think it's right. wrong Understood. religiously, morally, legally. But I think it's important perhaps to see a little bit from their perspective. No, that is, uh, that is helpful. And again, as you said, you're not uh, excusing this at all. It's, it's wrong. And you're not saying these people shouldn't be punished. But you're just kind of explaining the context by which they make these decisions to divert money. Yes, I th- at least part of their worldview. And assuming the New York Times actually is accurate. All right. Well, I mean, that was reported elsewhere as well. We're not relying solely on the New York Times on that one. 800-848-9222. We're going to take some calls on anything we've covered uh, with uh, Elliot in just a minute. Last question I'll ask about the yeshiva education issue is, you know, uh, uh, there has been reporting about the quote-unquote failures of Hasidic yeshiva education over the last eight years or so. And because whenever there's one of these reports, uh, sometimes politicians will say, sometimes, oh, we got to investigate this. We have to find out what's really going on. But a lot of these investigations seem to be slow-rolled or not go anywhere. In the de Blasio administration, his own commissioner of the Department of Investigation got fired because of uh, what was going on here. And now... Some people say that the reason these investigations always seem to happen so slowly is because of the political clout of the Hasidic community. There was this big article this weekend about how the Hasidic community seems strongly on board with Lee Zeldin. And uh, because the Hasidic community tends to vote as a block, both for Democrats and Republicans, no politician really wants to alienate that community. Now, um, do you think that's accurate, that because of the political clout of the Hasidic community and because they tend to vote as a block much more so than other ethnic or religious groups, that um, these investigations into the lack of education at yeshivas have been slow rolled? The only thing I would disagree with you on is the idea that they vote as a block. Again, I'm not super familiar. I believe the, the Sabner community votes as a block. Many other Hasidim do not vote as a block, any more than blacks vote as a block or Hispanics vote as a block. It happens to be the Orthodox Jews in general are much more right-wing, much more conservative. On moral issues, you have to be if you believe in biblical values, you know, gay marriage, transgenderism, all this nonsense. So if you're going to be right-wing, you're going to vote Republican, but they don't vote as a block if someone tells them to vote as a block. Got it. But otherwise, yeah, you're right. They have certain political clout, and the politicians know that if they cross them on certain issues, they're going to vote for the other candidate. But that's a reality of politics. That, I mean, that, that uh, certainly is. Uh, throw those headphones on uh, we'll, with a couple of folks uh, eager to chat with you. Elliot Resnick is here. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with uh, Simon in Brooklyn. H- Hello, Simon. Yeah, hi, Frankie. Hi, beautiful show. Um, you. You know, the, I want to say that since the story from the New York Times came out about the, the whole thing with the yeshivas and everything, I mean, you know, if you go to the public schools, there's a lot of issues there. This would writ- be written up in the, in the, sec- in the secular world of, of, of the, all the public schools and, con- and colleges. They wouldn't make a, such a big deal. And over here, this is like they, they sold probably New York Times sold out hundreds of thousands of papers and prescribers that the last two weeks. So uh, essentially, I think, Simon, I, if, if I get what you're saying, you're saying is uh, you're saying forget about um, education not going on in the yeshivas. It's not even going on in the public schools, basically. Exactly. There's a lot of issues in every school. And look what's going on. You know, if you want to go to public school, you have to go through you, you, to check if you have a gun and, and, and knives and the shootings and killings and we we everyone has issues, but this issue they blew up. They made it more than it is. I okay, see. So anything you want to you add know. there, uh, Elliot? No, I do agree with him that it's ironic 
that exactly at the point where liberals are abandoning classical education, they say it's just a product of dead white males, now is when they're demanding this type of classic education. And so Hasidim and other people are a little bit wary. Like, you know, who are you, who, these people, they're demanding this education. You are the people now who are p- p- pushing gay rights, pushing transgender bathrooms. You're abandoning, you know, even math or grammar. You know, who says if two plus two is four? Maybe, you know, your truth is that, is that it's five. So these people, this is not the 1950s. These are not the old classical liberals. These are the modern liberals. So it's kind of ironic that people pushing a classical education are the very same people now who are abandoning a classical education in their own schools. Thank you for the call, Simon. 800 848 to to Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Yeah. Hi. Good morning. I want to say. I mean, I myself graduated uh, with a yeshiva, with high school, and I went to college myself, and so on. I'm an Orthodox Jew. What I want to say though is, even though I am really, as Elliot Resnick, I believe, has said that he is against not teaching very minimally these Hasidic yeshivas. I want to explain why it was just mentioned a minute ago, actually, why. Uh, letting the government decide what to teach, what not to teach, is not only a slippery slope, it's impossible for them to accept it. And I agree with that. Why? They're going to start teaching about oral sex, abortion. Is there a God? Since 1979, I believe I'm correct, or 1977, I'm not sure, God was taken out of all schools, uh, uh, elementary, high school, college, what God? And it, that's why many people believe less in God than they did uh, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. Also, the, I think not only do they teach in, in, in regular public schools um, how the world was created, many possibilities, bing, bang, whatever, but I think, I, this I may be wrong, that teaching that intelligent design, meaning a God, a higher power, is not even allowed to be taught. I could be wrong. Well, on this. yeah, Charles, just, just to be clear, and the, you know, the the New York State Constitution and other aspects of New York law, and I'm sure this is similar in other states, um, you know, Maryland, Alaska, Nevada, New Jersey, um, it, they're not making detailed curriculum requirements, it's pretty broad in terms of requiring a sound basic education. Now, what is a sound basic education? There's a lot of wiggle room there. A lot of folks believe, I'm of the belief that that includes a um, the basic fundamentals of knowing how to read and write and how to do math and basic science. And I think one of the things that I've been concerned about in yeshivas, in the Hasidic community, not all but some, is that it, that it's a problem if all of these boys graduate from these yeshivas with without the basic ability to function in a secular world. Now, I, I appreciate the argument that Elliot and others have brought up. But uh, I don't think there's any requirement to teach about abortion and things like that, uh, at least in the law. I get what you're saying, that that is kind of what what happens at a district level, at a school board level, but I don't think it's required in the state constitution. In fact, I know it's not. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to uh, John in Brooklyn. Hello, John. You're on with Elliot Resnick. Okay, uh, I, I will share with you my experience with this devout Orthodox Jew I was privileged to know, who's one of our world's great ecologists, who was my mentor in graduate school when I was earning a master's degree in another department at the University of Arizona. And he would stress that we have to understand the basics of 
his field, which would be in evolutionary biology. Now, in his spare time, he would spend hours reading the Torah, but and and he was very skillful at that. But he would also say that as the secular side of his personality, that as the preeminent ecologist he was, he would expect people to have a basic understanding of evolution, to understand the principles of ecology, and he would strongly, I think, reject uh, uh, your guests' assertions that we don't need uh, minimal standards required under law uh, in, in, in states such as here in New York State. Now, just quickly, as a quick aside, uh, your previous caller was advocating for intelligent design. If you want to teach that in philosophy, that's fine. It has no bearing. It should not be taught at all in a science class. All right. Th- thank you, John. Anything you want to add there, Elliot? No, just I'll just briefly say in terms of evolution, no one has any idea what happened billions and billions and billions of years ago. We have theories. That's it. Let me also get your take really quickly. I know uh, recently you did a commentary on Kanye West. Uh, now, Kanye West is very much in the crosshairs in terms of uh, being canceled by certain corporations and others, a lot of folks rushing to sever ties with him, even some uh, musicians and former people people that he was family members with have rushed to denounce his comments uh, for being anti-Semitic. Uh, what did you think of the Kanye West uh, comments and regarding going to DEFCON 3 with Jews and uh, two, do you think it's appropriate for these corporations to sort of cancel him, to sever ties with him? Yeah, I'm against cancel culture in general. I think it's mean, it's vindictive, it's cruel, and I don't see the point of it. We didn't have cancel culture until around five years ago. That's when Alex Jones was banned from Twitter, 2018, just five years ago, a little bit less, that we started canceling people. Before then, if someone made an outrageous comment, there would be a public outcry. People would demand an apology. He usually would apologize eventually. Maybe a company on, on its own would decide we don't want to really be associated with this person. But for the mob to demand that an employer drop his employee and ruin him and cause him a billion-dollar loss, again, I think it's mean, vindictive, and cruel, and I don't understand it. And I thought we had conservatives were always against council culture. All of a sudden, we're for it. Now, 800-848-9222. You know, it's funny. You know what I've noticed about cancel culture? It's very funny the way that you put that because I've noticed everyone's against cancel culture until someone does, says or does something that they don't like. Then they're all for that person being canceled. Uh, original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Yes, good morning, Frank. Good morning. And and, and what I'm going to say is it's said in, in all respect, but, you know, I disagree with the gentleman. I don't, I don't know what – world someone's living in when they say you don't really need much of an education to succeed in business. You do, because I know I was held back because of my finances. I didn't get to go to college. It held me back all my life. You can, maybe in the Diamond District, you can go in and say, oh, I know this, but not much math and all that. But the rest of the world, you go into any of those office buildings and you say, I just have a high school education. They're going to say, sorry, you know, go, go do some menial job or something. And I've been held back all my life, so that's not true, you know. And and I think it's like all religions; they just want you to know religion to keep you in line with their way of thought. If they teach you higher education, you might have higher thoughts, and that, that's my thought. Well, I'm not sure that's accurate, right? I don't get the sense that um, a, a lot of religious education is designed to 
keep people from wanting to learn. Some of the most educated people in history were uh, products of religious education, Catholic schools, uh, Jewish schools, and I'm sure I could find a, uh, a Muslim madrasa somewhere along the line where that fits the, the, fits the bill. Anything you want to add there, uh, Elliot? I would say in the entrepreneur world, you need entrepreneurship. You need, you need initiative. You need creativity. And for that, you don't need an education. You need willpower and common sense and street smarts. And if you have connections, and the Hasidic community has many connections within themselves, just walk up and down the block in Williamsburg and Borough Park, see all those people who have very decent jobs. And especially among the smartest people, especially is where the education is not as important. Mm. Because there, the real geniuses of entrepreneurship is all creativity, and and especially in this internet age, especially today. All right. 800-848-9222. We'll take one or two more, and then we'll we'll move on. We'll let uh, Elliot get to sleep. Alan is in Rockaway. Hello, Alan. Hi, good morning. morning. I have a few thoughts. Uh, Number one is the most puzzling mystery in the history of the world is anti-Semitism. I mean, not that I'm a historical expert, but... I never heard of the Jewish people, you know, committing terror or genocide. And um, this would be really helpful if uh, there was some specificity of uh, what what are they being accused of, all right? But to go on for a minute, uh, education is the most important thing to Jewish parents in the world. They send their children to day school and night school. I know, because I used to live in Midwood and close to Borough Park. And another thing is, many of us, I'm Jewish myself, we see God as an abstraction. Maybe he's real, maybe he's not. But these people in their DNA, they believe in God and it, to the fullest extent. And I'm just afraid, being that I don't know what the, what the complaint is, is this part of the, uh, you know, Roe v. Wade? Let's turn no, that no. out. No, I, no, I, I don't think so, Alan. I think the complaint is, um, and again, I'm trying to uh, present a, a balanced view here, but I think the complaint is there's no education going on in far too many Hasidic yeshivas, no, no secular education. And it's, again, not all yeshivas, but far too many, as, um, you know, as, as others have said. 800-848-9222. We'll take one last one here. David is in the Bronx. Hello, David. Yes. Uh, good morning, Frank, and your guest. Um, this, something happened that upset me, which is why I called. Your guest seems to have an obsession with black women and children, which he brought up repeatedly. He should look at what's going on in Curious Joel, which I think is called something else now. Look at the unemployment rate up there or how many women and men are on food stamps in that village because they do not work and the government is subsidizing them. How many of them would be working if the government wasn't giving them food stamps and other assistance? You have, a, you have some nerve. Mr. Resnick, because I know where you're coming from. People think there's no such thing as racist Jews, and I know for a fact that there is. You need to stop attacking black women right. and children Calm and down, look David. at your own community. Calm down, uh, David. Let me let uh, Elliot respond. Any response there, uh, Elliot? That, the, that was just a good example for me to use to show the perniciousness of the welfare state. The example he raised, I think, is a good example also. The I believe the Hasidic community would be much better off without the welfare state as well for the exact reason he mentioned. It would force them 
to live more in reality rather than the government. So I, I, actually, I think I, a lot of folks in Curious Joel would disagree with that. I'm sure they say. would. But I, I think it has a demoralizing and corrupting influence on everybody when you're living off the dole. No, it's a corrupting influence. Uh, fair enough. Hey, uh, Elliot Resnick, you got to come back. Uh, people should check out Movers and Shakers. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, they can check out your podcast as well. It's been enlightening. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. If you want to comment on anything else we've covered today, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. with this song. Have you ever had one of those songs where you just need to play it over and over and over and over and over again? For me, I have been doing that with this song for the last uh, week and a half. It's called Hello, appropriately enough, by Martin Solveig and um, the Dragonettes. I, of course, was exposed to it in one of the episodes from season two of Ted Lasso. Great scene in the episode Beard After Dark. And sure enough, I am so hooked on this song. The other day, when I was trying to maximize um, how I should stay awake driving home, I did something I never do. I turned off talk radio. I turned off all the podcasts that I listened to. And I just listened to this song on a loop for a half hour. I find the song so catchy, so uplifting. And if you're having a difficult time staying awake while driving home, turn up the volume. song there's this whole nexus with tennis and uh, it's really just interesting i think it's a wonderful song as far as uh, songs that you might hear in in clubs go 800-848-9222 that's 1-800-848-9222 hey speaking of talk radio i hope i don't get in trouble for telling this story or if i if i shouldn't be telling this then i hope uh anybody that's in a position to get me in trouble has now gone to bed but 
you know, be <laughs> if uh, if if you are in a position to get me to trouble in trouble, please stop listening for ten seconds. Just want to say this. Uh, you might remember a week or two ago, I played the entirety of the CBS Sunday morning piece. Actually, I shouldn't have even said it was CBS Sunday morning. But a certain network with three letters that has a news show that airs on the day before Monday, they did a piece all about talk radio, which I found to be completely inaccurate and outrageous. And I played the whole thing and I gave them credit because I felt I I didn't want to take it out of context or being be accused of taking it out of context. So I said, what better way to do that than play the whole thing? Wouldn't you know it? That network, and again, this is a show that I still watch and still enjoy. That network, because of me playing that segment with proper attribution, has um, actually gone to the, the, they've actually filed a complaint with the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, against this radio station because supposedly we played the entirety of that segment. Now, do you think it's really because we played the entirety of that segment? I don't. I think it's because I was critical of that segment and pointed out the logical fallacies in that segment. And I view this as an attempt to silence me for standing up for talk radio. I view this 100% as an attempt by the Tiffany Network, to make sure that I don't dispute their reporting, if you can even call it reporting. So I want to assure you that as long as I'm privileged to be able to have a microphone to speak into, and who knows, maybe management will get fed up with me, and I sincerely hope not. They'll say, "Eh, no, you're done. Don't bother showing up to work tomorrow. As long as I am uh, able to have a microphone to speak into, I am never going to stop telling the story of the essential role that talk talk radio is playing in America today. And that role to me is not a political one. That role is about facilitating free speech and free expression. Bob Grant, one of the greatest radio talk show hosts of all time, would begin his show by saying – Welcome to the program dedicated to the free and open exchange of ideas and of opinions. And as far as I'm concerned, that's what's missing in America today, a free and open exchange of ideas and of opinions. And as far as I'm concerned, talk radio is one of the last places where that exchange can take place. And if a a big national television network wants to spend three and a half minutes painting what this medium does, which as far as I'm concerned is the best medium ever for both entertainment and information by by portraying this as some sort of political pornography, then I am going to speak up against it. And no complaint with the FCC or anybody else is ever going to get me to uh, be quiet about that. So um, for, I hope I'm not, you know, getting us in trouble, but I found that so outrageous, one, what they did, and two, the fact that their reaction to my giving my opinion on what they did 
was not to ask to come on this show, which I gladly would have had Ted Koppel. I still gladly have Ted Koppel or anybody else, the producer of that segment or anyone else of their choosing on for a, a real honest discussion, a frank discussion. But their reaction was to cry to the teacher about about what we did in playing the segment. I mean, I found it outrageous, absolutely outrageous on uh, on many, many different levels. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. So I will say yesterday was a difficult show because much like, um, you know, Sunday night into Monday morning for me is always challenging because you never really get a full night's sleep. So um, the rest of the week... I have a full night's sleep, well, a full day's sleep pretty much before you do the show because that's your routine. You sleep during the day. You work at night. But that's not the case on Sunday going into Monday because you snap back from a, a, a nocturnal schedule to a regular one so that you could spend time with family and friends and so forth and be on a regular schedule. And then that transition of Sunday into Monday, it's always challenging. So um, I have become sort of caffeine dependent, Right. And there was a time I was doing this show without any coffee, or I would do one one cup a day. Uh, that Those days are long gone. For better or worse, I'm drinking two, three, sometimes four cups of coffee per show, especially on Sunday into Monday. Well, yesterday was a difficult show because much like the movie Airplane 2, we ran out of coffee. Damn, if I told him once, I told him a hundred times, store extra coffee. So um, I... Told my wife a bunch of times yesterday, hey, let me bring in some coffee today. Remind me, I got to bring in K cups. So this way, in case they haven't had a chance to restock the coffee. And by the way, we're very lucky to work in a place where they give us free coffee and free snacks and stuff like that. I've worked at some other places where that's not the case. But I said to my, my wife, please remind me to bring in K cups. Remind me to bring in K cups. Sure enough, I'm in the midst of driving to the radio station and I realize I forgot to bring in any coffee. I said, I hope they restock the coffee. And sure enough, no coffee. No coffee. And I said, well, look, I don't... Well, yesterday, I had a very tough time. Driving home, I... Forget about tough time doing the show. I was concerned about driving home. I did something I very rarely do. Can't remember the last time I did it. I actually pulled over to sleep on the side of the road in Brooklyn because I didn't want to fall asleep while driving. And um, And that's how... Fatigue that I was because of the transition from Sunday into Monday. So I went to a the only place I could find open around here right before the show, which was a drugstore. Um, and I loaded up on K-Cups so that, you know, everybody can use some. And I got some of my favorite coffee, which is an espresso-flavored coffee uh, called Cafe Bastella. Very good. And I got some of that. And sure enough... I, I wanted to hide the Cafe Bastello so that the next time that we're out of coffee, I can still, you know, I can still find some of that stuff. What did I find? There was a whole jar of instant Cafe Bastello, which I think I bought the last time we were out of coffee. So I didn't have to go crazy going all looking for coffee. It was already here. You just got to know where to look. And as Barry Farber would say, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thank you for tuning in. I'm sure a lot of you know people like my mother. My mother loves to uh, buy things. My whole life, she has lived to spoil me. And my son, her first and only grandchild, in his 11 months of life, she he has lived the same life that I've lived. If there is something to be bought, my mother, for him, my mother will rush to buy it and will uh, buy it the best and most expensive possible, whatever the thing is. Well, there was an interesting uh, article in The Atlantic by Annie Maduri Atherton, and she it's called Babies Don't Need Fancy Things. came out last week. And she writes that our culture sends parents the message that if they buy the right products, they can ensure their child's success. The idea is an illusion, but a tempting one. And she writes, and I really empathized with her. She writes, in the months before the birth of my first child, just over a year ago, I often lay awake at night letting parenting anxieties swirl. Chief among them was a decision that now seems trivial, but at the time seemed crucial. (laughs) I can't tell you how I relate to this woman's thinking. What should our baby sleep in? The best option, according to the online sources I consulted, was the snoo. A $1,695 smart bassinet that responds to a baby's cries with soothing, rocking motions. I could have taken this recommendation and moved on. Instead, I dwelled. Buying the world's smartest and safest baby bed, as the snoo claimed to be, did seem like the responsible choice. But generations of babies have slept fine without a snoo. So surely we didn't really need it. Then again, now that such a thing exists, shouldn't I take advantage of it? But was spending that much money financially irresponsible given my budget? And was it even really the best option out there anyway? Could there be something even better? Um, And then she goes on and on about how whether it's a crib, a stroller, toys, um, there's all sorts of things pushing parents towards the most expensive baby option. And I went through this, my wife and I, when we were trying to figure out things to put on our baby registry uh, for, you know, people attending the baby shower and so forth. And I remember we just recently got rid of this. But I remember for the first nine months of Carmine's life, right next to his, you know, where we change him, there was a baby wipe warmer. Baby wipe warmer. Now, if you're a crying two-and-a-half-month-old, five-month-old, who has pooped in his diaper, do you really care if the baby wipe is heated or not? I don't think you do. But sure enough, we had this heated baby, this baby wipe warmer with the thinking being that it would be more comfortable for him. And this goes on and on. Stephen Abalowitz is a pediatrician in California. He told the reporter in this Atlantic piece 
that he's seen new parent anxiety worsen in recent years among his patients. Parents may have always wanted to do everything possible for their child, but social media has intensified that desire while also making the process of choosing what's best more overwhelmingly, almost overwhelming, almost immediately after the reporter learned that she was expecting. Her Instagram feed was flooded with baby products, videos for fancy diapers, promising better sleep. You know, it's funny. Uh, Andrew Giuliani's daughter is a couple of days younger than my son. So we're kind of going through all the same stuff. And in, his daughter was the same costume that my son was. They were both a pumpkin for Halloween. And so whenever I see Andrew, we spend about 40 seconds discussing politics, another five minutes discussing radio because he's been doing a lot of fill-in work on the radio, and then we spend the rest of our time discussing parenting because we're going through the exact same thing. When is your child crawling? When is your child crawling? This and that. And um, I was telling him about how we put an overnight diaper on Carmine when, when I put him to bed or when his wife, when, my, when his mother puts him to bed. And Andrew stopped. He said, what? What's an overnight diaper? Lo and behold, I blew his mind by telling him about overnight diapers. Now, does he really need an overnight diaper for his daughter, Grace? Probably not. I will guarantee you that he and his wife, after I had this conversation with him, went out and bought some overnight diapers. And sure enough, I think the only reason we knew about them is because of the Internet. Videos for fancy diapers promise better sleep. And this is from the Atlantic article. A prospect that seriously tempted the reporter during her peak exhaustion. Even though the diapers cost twice as much as Pampers, they do. The website for one high-tech baby monitor claimed to let parents track the health, wellness, and development of their baby, leading the reporter to wonder if she'd be depriving her child of good health without it. Take toys, for example. After the reporter in this Atlantic piece got pregnant, among the first Instagram ads that she saw were high-end toy subscriptions, which claimed to deliver stage-based play essentials for your child's developing brain. The version for infants comes every two months. It's a toy subscription and costs $80 a box. After reading this, the reporter felt guilty about not having this. And the essentially the whole gist of this article is that there's so much pressure on parents to get fancy things for their child and ultimately... By and large, it doesn't really matter. And I I so felt for this woman. And I felt like she was going through the same thing my wife and I were going through. And she finishes the article by saying, in the end, I splurged on a few items, such as a cushy nursery glider and a super durable upper baby stroller that costs hundreds of dollars, even though I bought it used. But I also found a lot of free or cheap items on local Facebook groups. I don't regret buying our nicer baby things, given how much mileage I got out of them. But I'm not sure how much any of them actually helped, especially with what ended up being my biggest challenges, the massive lifestyle adjustment of becoming a parent, navigating a pandemic, and a child care affordability crisis. She's so right. So right. So while I don't think I made the wrong choices, they just weren't that consequential. No product could allay the murkier fear that I'd be a bad parent, 
which was what underpinned all my hand-wringing. If nothing else, though, the decision-making process was practice for the lifetime of hard parenting choices ahead, even those that couldn't be solved by consumption. Learning to live with good enough, whether that means my possessions, my own competence, or my child's future, may just turn out to be one of the most important things I do as a parent, even if it's a lesson I'll have to learn over and over again. I thought it was a great article. And uh, it really spoke to me. But essentially, the key takeaway was the headline. Babies don't need fancy things. And that's a lesson my wife and I have learned over and over again. Curious as uh, to your take and your experiences with your children or grandchildren. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You're welcome to comment on anything else we've covered today as well. We've certainly covered a lot of ground. That is for sure. Melanie is in Danbury, Connecticut. Hello, Melanie. Yes. Hi. Hi, Hi. Frank. Hi. Um, first of all, I love your show. Thank you. I love you. everyone's show. That's all I do is listen to WABC radio um, all day long. Wonderful. Well, hopefully fact, our show is your favorite. Well, um, yes, it is. Right. One of them. A little, there's, little, there's two people. It's between okay. you and, you know, your other friend. Okay. Fair um, enough. I'll take okay. it. Okay. But I like I like all the information. I feel like I'm getting like another college degree listening to everyone's uh, people they bring on and their last show and everything about. It's so great. And I have a comment on the baby thing. But um, I'm really calling about um, what you were talking about, what happened on, I'll say it, CBS, <laughs> that Sunday station. Mm-hmm. I, did, I did not see it. Two, two, day, um, two weeks before then. I I did my canceling on them because it's such fake news, like a lot of the reporting. So I didn't watch it. So I didn't see that particular segment about the radio. But I'm so proud of you of speaking out because I'm all about that, you know, freedom of speech. That was so great that what you did. I'm sorry they reported you. But um, I would just keep hanging strong on that, on what you do. Because it's it's so funny. I just I keep turning off the fake news, if you want to say it, and those shows. And I said I can't watch them, so I particular I cancel them myself. Um, the other thing, okay, now a lighter note about um, the baby thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm a mother and a grandmother. Here's what you need. This is all you need: <laughs> a wooden spoon. It's all about the kitchen. They all like the kitchen. The wooden spoon, Tupperware, or a box, or if you want a little bit noisier sound, you know, a pot or a pan. They take that spoon and they hit it on the box, on the Tupperware, or on your pan. And that's it. That's what they want. And boxes. They like to crawl in boxes, just regular boxes. You don't need any, like, fancy toys. And they they like stuffed animals. That's all I can say. Melanie, uh, that is my experience (laughs) thus far as well. Uh, The one aspect of uh, homemade uh, baby entertainment devices that you didn't mention that at least my son is quite fond of is the empty um, plastic water bottle. He will flip okay. out for an empty yeah. plastic water bottle. He loves squeezing <laughs> it. He loves throwing it. If he can get yeah, somebody please. to pick it up uh, from the ground and if he can throw it, yeah. put it in his mouth again, that's like winning the yeah. lotto for him. But I appreciate your comments and uh, and your no. feedback on that, Melanie. Thank you. No, it's true. Okay. Thank you. God bless. Thank you. Likewise. 800 848 
888-900-9222. It does grate me that that network handled things the way that they did. It, 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 it kills me because of the way that I am. Do you know when anybody has ever said, hey, you know, by the way, why don't you invite so-and-so on or why don't you uh, invite uh, XYZ on to give blank perspective on X? Do you know when I've said no? Never. Never. Whether it's, um, you know, aliens, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's um, uh, yeshiva education, whether it's uh, uh, whatever the the designated hitter rule, whatever the case is, whenever I can offer an alternative point of view, I do. And that's what killed me that about that piece is there was no alternative point of view. And um, if they wanted to come on the show and talk about it, I'd love it. I'd love it. But instead, they chose to run to the principal's office, which I really have very little respect for. 800-848-9222. Uh, 800-848-9222. Patrick is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello, Patrick. Hey, how you doing, Frank? I'm well. Thank you. Yeah, I just was uh, – you brought up an interesting topic. Uh, friends of mine have, have – uh, they had two boys. I say at the time, uh, one was, I'll say, four, and the other one was two, probably at the time. The, the mother took the four-year-old to Disney World, and they had to pack up all their stuff, and they went down there. And after they left, I said to my my friend, you know, you guys are spending an awful lot of money going from Pennsylvania down to Disney World, spending all this money. Do you think that your son's really going to remember all this and have a great time <laughs> with his mother? He said, you know, I never really thought about that, but, well, they, she decided to went. And, you know, she was hell-bent to really go down there with him and have a good time. Fast forward, he just graduated from high school last year, and I remembered this. So I said, Dawson. Do you remember going to Disney World with your mom when you were four? He said, no. And he looked at his dad. Did I really go to Disney World with mom? Like, they never even talked about it. I'm not surprised. I am not surprised, Patrick. Honestly, um, if I think about my own life, the memories of things that I have before the age of five is very, very minimal. I can remember maybe, um, I don't know, a, a couple of dozen experiences that I ever had. Before the age of five, uh, let alone a nice trip like that. I think I agree with you. I think it's wasted uh, at and that how, age. And how many people pack their, their kids up? You know, I mean, hey, they're having fun. I guess it's about the parents, too. But, yeah, and then they stand in those lines. And nothing against Disney World. You know, I'm not saying anything like that. But it, they stand in line forever to do all this stuff. And a lot of times, these kids just don't even know if they care. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, I agree with you, Patrick. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Uh, Robert is in Maryland. Hello, Robert. Oh, good evening. Have a, uh, your great show. Thank oh, you. I just Before I mention something, yeah, I went to the New York World's Fair in 1940 when I was just three, and I remember the old steam engines and the, uh, I think it was the Lionel Train, a huge exhibit. But anyway, uh, getting back, you know, I had uh, six kids. Wow. 61 through, uh, you know, 73, non-identical twins, the last two. But anyway, 
Uh, yeah, I mentioned something. Um, I used to subscribe to Jewish Week of New York uh, when it was print, and they had pictures of modern Orthodox high school grads, men and girls and boys, and uh, the top uh, colleges, Ivy League and so on, they were getting into. And uh, I think they stopped the printing after 2020. But also, uh, Supreme Court Edwards versus Aguilard, 1987, and they said you can't teach creationism in science class or biology class. And to cap that, in 2005, John Jones III, uh, appointed by W. Bush, heard the Dover, Pennsylvania case, and there was a book uh, by one of the uh, parents uh, or a reporter, Devil in Dover, I think published around 09. Well, the Dover School Board, uh, Kitz Miller versus the Dover School Board, uh, John Jones, after 40 days, said uh, the creationists don't have a case, and uh, they kicked it out. And also, by that time, seven of the eight board members were uh, displaced. Because the people, uh, parents wanted their kids to get into good colleges, if they particularly if they're going to pharmacy or, you know, biology or med school. Anyway, um, yeah, three uh, years, seven to nine, uh, three speakers on a Sunday at the University of Pennsylvania Museum was talking all about um, evolution and Darwin and also. Each year, uh, one of the three speakers uh, talked about the Dover case. You know, a couple of lawyers, uh, 10 lawyers from both sides. But anyway, I wanted to mention that. And uh, also, uh, your early speaker, um, there was no email in 1965 when uh, Darcy Kilgallen most likely murdered. She knew too much. Yeah, I, I, if he said email, I think I got an email about that as well, Robert. Thank you. If he said email, I think he probably misspoke. Um, but uh, I'd have to go back and but I'm I, and see exactly what he said. It, it escapes me. That was three hours ago. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. I'm not sure what to add to that discussion about uh, the Dover case and and creationism. So I will just let those comments stand. As they are. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Ron Kunkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. How was your Halloween with your son? Great. Great. Really fun. Thank you. Um, I was calling about what you were talking about, the baby products. Uh, I have, I've always told you, I had two children. Now they're 15 and 11. But I remember when they were younger, they had those diaper warmers, uh, the wipe warmers. Oh, they had a product that we found. That was horrible. Even worse than that was the uh, the diaper genie. Oh my everyone... goodness! I had I had three of those because two people had given me one, uh, given us one, and um, we had gotten one uh, as a uh, as a shower gift. Every single one of them was a piece of junk. Every single one of them broke. Yeah, well, everyone was talking about it, and my wife. I don't know how about how your wife is. Once there's a rage about something, we had to run out and get it, and they didn't have Amazon back then because I could have returned it. But we went through two of them. They never worked. The bag kept falling through. Oh, the I, worst. I, I, 
first, and we ended up just getting little grocery store bags and just tying them off and just getting rid of them. And it was it was horrible. It was horrible. But uh, yeah, it, it, back in the day when we were growing up, we didn't have any of this stuff. Diaper wipes being warmed, and we just we just and we turned out good, Frank. You know what I'm saying? But like I said, yeah, I had a horrible experience with that diaper genie. Have a good night, Frank. Thank you. Yes, that is a great example. Um, we, we, our neighbor had given us one and I get, you know, it worked for them, right? And, Cause they recommended it and they were done having children and they gave it to us. They loved it. Did not work. Did not work. Dro- drove me crazy setting this thing up and just getting it to work. And in concept, it's great. It's basically, uh, it's basically like a long, a, 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 um, a garbage can essentially, but it's a garbage can that um, it does all sorts of interesting things. You throw the diaper in there, you th- do the thing, and it, it it's a great trash receptacle when it works. Could not get it to work. So, all right, let me set up the second one that somebody bought us. That didn't work either. Both total garbage. And I think we had a third also. 800-848-9222. Ernie is in Port Chester. Hello, Ernie. Hey, Frank. I just wanted to... Uh, compliment you on your resourcefulness because you know, there's not many of you left. You know, you mentioned Grant and Farber, and uh, I don't know what happens that we lose you. I'm, I mean, you're on late, but it doesn't matter. We love listening to you, and uh, that's about it, buddy. Well, that's awfully nice of you, Ernie. Thank you. Yep. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. Rivke is yes. in Brooklyn. Hello, Rivke. Finally. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm, I want to com- uh, compliment you. I actually woke up in the middle of the segment of whatever I heard about this, Mr. Resnick. It sounded really good, much better than the other show you had about the subject. So I want to compliment you. Thank you. I also want to make a comment about the last caller. You always seem to have somebody like that that talks about uh, these Hasidic men walking around. I guarantee you they're not walking around doing nothing. They might be in school studying some kind of field that they need to do uh, to go into. Uh, You have to understand that uh, uh, religious people have large families, and don't you think they want to support those families they they want to be working and they want to be earning money so they could support their families. And as a matter of uh, record, we Jewish people seem to be uh, contributing more to the taxes in this country than uh, than any other group. So I want to make that comment. I also want to say that I, I listen to ABC all day and I hear during the day, how the public school children are so behind in their education because of COVID. And and I keep hearing this comment. I'm a reading teacher, and this really gets me. They say some kids are so behind in reading, they may never read, uh, 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 read in the future because they're, they're very behind. I want you to know that's a fallacy. That's not true. A child could learn to read on their own. They don't need a teacher. They don't need school. They just have to have the will and somebody to help them with it, and they could learn to read. And during COVID, our our religious uh, uh, teachers and our schools, uh, uh, they followed it to the law. They did not break the law in any way, but they had Zoom lessons 
and they had um, there are some schools that don't believe in Zoom, so they had conference call lessons, and the teachers continued teaching, and the children continued learning, and thank God our students are not behind in their education. Oh, Rifki, thank you for that. Appreciate that. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. Uh, coming up in just a minute, we'll try and go through some of the mail, and uh, we'll uh, continue to take your calls. By the way, if you ever want to email me, you can do so at uh, frank.morano at uh, wabcradio.com. That's frank. Um, M-O-R-A-N-O at W-A-B-C radio dot com. And uh, we're going to do, you know, we're going to do in just a minute, we're going to go through the, we're going to give someone an opportunity to win some money. And we're going to give somebody an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If they can do that, they'll win $1,000. You know what they'll get as a consolation prize? They'll get something from the other side of Midnight Store. There's really cool stuff in there. There's hats, there's shirts, there's these great new Halloween posters, one of which my mother actually ordered, shockingly. And if you want to see the great stuff that we have in our online store, go to the website store.othersideofmidnightshow.com. That's store.othersideofmidnightshow.com, and you can uh, use the code word FRANK15, and you will get a 15% discount. So that's nothing to sneeze at. I bought all sorts of stuff on there. And uh, some folks think I get it for free. I do not. I have absolutely purchased uh, all the bit of, uh, of other side of midnight gear that you see me wearing from time to time. All right. Uh, seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We'll give you an opportunity to win $1,000 by answering 10 trivia questions straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is Taylor Swift with uh, one of the songs from her new album. My son is actually a very big fan of Taylor Swift. Whenever he's crying or something, my mother will play a Taylor Swift. Uh, his mother will play a Taylor Swift song, and he will generally uh, calm down. I was just informed by the inimitable Matt Blaze that um, there's some Taylor Swift news. What's going on? With it's her? actually pretty big, actually. It's a record-breaking news. Ooh. So this song is anti-hero. It is number one in the Billboard Hot 100. Taylor Swift, every one of her songs on this album, I don't know if it's every song on the album, but she now occupies every spot in the top ten You kidding? on the Hot 100. That's Billboard. wild. First artist to ever do this. Drake had nine in 2021. Now Taylor Swift has ten out of ten of the top ten and... This is her 10th album. She has all 10 of the top 10 songs in America right now? In, a, in the, On the Hot 100. That is crazy. Yep. 
Well, that's digital. I mean, that's, that's the amazing. digital age. That is Because this couldn't have happened 30 years ago. No, that's true. That's true. All right. Well, without further ado, let us see uh, if that good luck that Taylor Swift has been enjoying will translate to today's contestant in... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Uh, thank you, Chris Libertini. Let us meet today's contestant, Ryan, in Baltimore. Hello, Ryan. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well, Ryan. Uh, thanks for listening to our show. Thanks for calling in. Are you familiar with this segment? Have you gotten a chance to hear it? Very familiar. Okay, great. All right, so uh, we'll just get started if you're ready. All right, Ryan? Ready to go. All right, and uh, next time you uh, talk to our pal Sean Casey at WCBM, give give him a hard time for us, okay? I definitely will. All right, okay. What holiday took place yesterday? Uh, Halloween. What day of the week does Election Day fall on? Oh, oh gosh, gosh, what, gosh, what day gosh, of the week? gosh, Tuesday, Tuesday. Who is the current Speaker of the House of Representatives? Nancy Pelosi. What are the two teams in the World Series? The Phillies and the Astros. What famous magician and escape artist died on Halloween? Oh, oh gosh. Mentioned him earlier. Jew- um, Jewish starts Harry with Houdini. That's right. What is the name of the murderer in the Halloween films? Uh, Freddie Myers. Ah, I'm sorry. No, <sighs> Freddie Myers is his cousin. It is Michael Myers. Michael, Michael Myers. Myers. Oh my God! I can't believe I just did that. That's right. I think you. Maybe that's a hybrid of um, Freddie Krueger. Freddie Krueger and, and yeah. Michael Myers. You, that's what it was. You know, you've actually inspired me, Ryan. I'm going to create some AI art. Of Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers as one person, but I appreciate you playing. You got uh, you got you got five five questions right. I'm going to put you on hold. Give your information to Kenneth. We're going to send you a consolation prize. Okay. Thanks a lot, boys. All right, thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. If you want to comment on uh, anything we have covered thus far, um, you know, I guess now is as good a time as any to go through. This is a Facebook message from Joe Palumbo, and if you ever want to uh, hear, you want to reach me on Facebook, go to facebook.com slash Fan. He writes, Frank, is the Sean Casey you mentioned from the Baltimore radio station this morning the same Sean Casey that was a DJ on WORFM in the 70s? Well, I have researched this, and the answer is no. It is not the same Sean Casey. I guess there's just something about having the name Sean Casey that... Um, that goes with being in radio. Uh, this is on Twitter, uh, on a Twitter user by the name of Charlie. And you can reach me on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. Uh, he writes, great interview with Colonel Douglas McGregor. It got sent to me in a group email 
in a group email chain that I'm on. So I think many people outside your radio area caught it. He's the best, and you were fantastic with your questions. That's all. Hope you're well. Yeah, I got really, um, look, whenever I have Colonel McGregor on, he's a polarizing person, and the subject of the Ukraine-Russia war is a polarizing subject. So I always get a lot of feedback in both directions on that, but a lot of people really seem to enjoy it. So I'm glad to hear that. Christopher writes, on the subject of Halloween, I have been waiting for a year for this. I remember just last year, you were saying how stupid it was for people to get dressed up on Halloween. So I was happy to hear that you got dressed up yesterday. First of all, I don't remember saying it was stupid. What I probably said, Christopher, is that it was for kids, which it is. You know, my wife and I went out because our son was celebrating his first Halloween and trick-or-treating. We wouldn't do this if we didn't have a child, Chris. So I, I, I don't remember what I said a year ago, but I think I stand by exactly <laughs> what whatever it was that I said. Hey, this is an interesting email that I got from Ellen. Ellen is probably my favorite listener, and she is, um, other than our owner, John Katzmatidis, and uh, she's one of the more prolific posters in the Facebook group. And I'm going to read this. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it because it is a little lengthy, but... Um, she writes, hi, Frank, guess what? Yesterday, Noemi, uh, um, uh, Noemi Petkus, her daughter and I met at the Hungarian pastry shop on Amsterdam at 110th Street. I decided to walk uptown from the Port Authority all the way up to 110th Street, and it was a real treat. It's been too long since I was in that neighborhood, and uh, I just loved looking at all the beautiful architecture and architectural details. No, Noemi is originally from Hungary and wanted to meet at that particular place. I actually think the Budapest Cafe in the 80s on the east side is actually much better, but she wanted to meet at the Hungarian pastry shop. Noemi is absolutely lovely, but speaks very little English. And although at one time I was pretty good at French, I don't remember much anymore. So thank goodness for smartphones. We kept on typing our sentences and waiting for the translations to make ourselves heard. You know, it's funny because with Google Translate, you could do that. I did that when I was meeting my uncle's future in-laws recently. They're from the Philippines, and nobody speaks any English. So we all had dinner recently, and I was using Google Translate to communicate with them. It's very, very handy. And she writes, Ellen writes, I think she's one of the loveliest, smartest, and least judgmental people in your group. Most important sentence here. Thank you for your Facebook group. I have made so many friends due to your little club. It's actually quite special, despite the harsh words some of us use at times. I've learned to navigate around those people. Thanks again, Frank. And I'm reading that because if you're listening to this show but not yet part of the Facebook group, you're only getting half the experience. So I would encourage you, join the Facebook group. Uh, just search on Facebook, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and haters. All right. This is from Pete uh, from yesterday. Hi, Frank. Great job with Dr. Turi. Note for the days he gave the time window is 48 hours before or after the date. He is a remarkable man, and your audience will see the results in the next few weeks. Stay safe and God bless. Uh, Pete, great. Thank you. I got a lot of good feedback. On that, uh, on that discussion with uh, Dr. Turi. You may remember the se- subject we did a week ago on demons. The, this person writes, uh, Janice writes, loved it. Demons part awesome. 
Channel 2 had a show called Evil on two years. It was exactly about that. People possessed by demons. Scared the crap out of me, but I kept watching. Realized I had nightmares that night after I watched it, but kept on watching. Cast excellent, but Channel 2 switched it to Paramount+. Plus. You got to pay to watch it. Didn't want to pay, so that was it. Just found out I can get it on Amazon Prime, which I have, so I will be watching. Show gets to your mind. Those are the worst. Also, just taped The Exorcist. Newt was based on truth. Supposedly, Shirley MacLaine's son. Who knows? Graphic scenes, but it also got into your mind. Why do you do this to me? And then she adds, Short People by Randy Randy Newman. Not fond of short men. They smoke the biggest cigars. Sound familiar? Regards, Janice. I'm not sure if that's uh, – I'm, I'm pretty sure that is a <laughs> shot at me, but it is what it is. Hey, on the subject of cigar boxes, this is from a week ago. Linda writes, hi, Frank. I just heard that you were wondering what to do with your cigar boxes. When I was a psychotherapist and an art therapist for a mental health center, I asked local cigar shops for their empty cigar boxes. They were very accommodating and gave me boxes whenever I asked. The clients made many beautiful pieces of art as well as practical pieces with the boxes, handbags and tea boxes as examples. You could donate them to a local mental health center, school, etc., in the words of El D'Amato. They brought a lot of joy to the wonderful clients at the center. Just an idea. I hope Rachel gets well quickly. You don't get, hope you don't get sick and little Carmine's teething pain subsides. It's such a shame that the little ones go through such discomfort. Well, that's uh, true, Linda, and it's a great idea on the cigar box front. But, I mean, isn't it a small price to pay for the opportunity to have teeth? I mean, think of all the the things teeth get you through, right? I mean, I think that uh, absolutely makes sense to me. Hey, this is from an email I got this weekend. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's, uh, it's kind of lengthy. Um, a gentleman named Mark writes, uh, Good morrow. My name is Mark from South Jersey, originally born and raised on Staten Island until um, 2007. I'm a dedicated listener to your Other Side of Midnight show. I wanted to ask why you are so against what Lee Zeldin is saying about removing D.A. Alan, Alvin Bragg. And then he goes on to add a couple of things. And question two, you've also stated on air many times you're voting for Lee Zeldin primarily because you don't want to pay the congestion pricing fee. Is that really your only reason? And then he goes on to list other things. So, no, it is not my only reason, but it is the uh, it is a key reason that I'm voting for Lee Zeldin. Uh, I like Lee Zeldin. I've known Lee for a long time. I've backed him for uh, a number of his previous bids for office, and I think uh, he's got a lot to offer, and I think he's going to be a much better governor than Kathy Hochul. He's done a lot of things in this campaign that I find very disappointing, and I wish there were an alternative on the ballot. But I don't want to go through all of the things that I'm disappointed with with Lee Zeldin because I don't want to like talk him down because I'm hoping he wins. And uh, as as you know, as many of the things that I might be disappointed with Lee Zeldin about, I think it's a binary choice at this point. There's two candidates on the ballot. There's two candidates that seem to have an opportunity to win. And one's Lee Zeldin, one's Kathy Hochul. In my view, Lee Zeldin is far, far better than Kathy Hochul. So to me, it's not much of a choice. On the subject of plastic bottles, good morning, Frank. I listen to your show each morning while I'm working out before I go to school. 
This morning you mentioned your son likes to play with plastic water bottles. Our kids did too, and now our grandbabies do. Please just be careful and remove the cap of the bottle before he plays with it. You don't want any choking hazards. God bless you, your family, and that wonderful common sense and truthful radio station. Well, back to working out. Well, it's uh, very kind. Uh, that is from Dr. Bob. I appreciate that, Dr. Bob. Let me squeeze in one last piece of mail here. Uh, there are a lot of good folks here. All right. Um, this is from Jay. From the heart, tough love. Hey, Frank, please take a breath and read this email and digest what I have to say. Every time I email you, I say, I love you, man, because I truly have respect for you. Uh, last night, as you talked about how the cats are draining you and the resources, my big bro gear kicked in, and I have to give you this sincere advice, which may be tough love. Now, this is lengthy. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Facts. You have a great, healthy son. You have an amazing wife. You don't have infinite resources. Good news, as you continue being successful, you will have way, way, way above influence. Most important, what is your true purpose? There's only one answer to ensure the growth, happiness, and success of your son. And to ensure when you are kaput, Rachel is completely cared for. Uh, In any event, he goes on to say... um, You need to curtail your discretionary spending that Rachel may not need, but you also need to divest yourself of those cats. I understand they are family, but please, Frank, the money spent on pets are truly going against karma. I wish I had the ability to convey this in a sage, wise way, but try to cut back on all spending that you don't have to lay out. Uh, Love you, Jay from Huntington County, your number one Indian fan. Let me be very clear, Jay. There is a better chance that Rachel would throw me out of the house before throwing the cats out of the house. That is only a slight exaggeration. These cats are not going anywhere. I mean, even if I were to uh, lean in your direction, that is a losing argument. Losing argument. That is going nowhere. All right. Um. I think uh, that about, uh, why don't we end it there? If you didn't get your letter read today, uh, perhaps you will get it read on the next. Well, let me give you, by the way, snail mail. I love getting snail mail. We got a lot of great snail mail, including we had a nice um, a nice piece of mail from a listener named Josephine. She sent me two photo albums just filled with photos of Carmine that uh, that my wife and I had posted on social media. So that was nice. If you ever want to send me snail mail, you can do so. P.O. Box, just send it to my attention, Frank Moreno. P.O. Box 1777. Just picture the year after the revolution. P.O. Box 1777, New York, New York, third floor, uh, 10163. Okay? And if you didn't get your letter read today, perhaps it will be on the next edition of... Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
This is uh, The Other Side of Midnight from Stevie G and the Conspiracists, a fine, fine tune, available on iTunes for a dollar. We're trying to make it the biggest hit in all of music. I'd love to see this knock one of the Taylor Swift songs up off the top ten. Think of the great publicity that would be for this show, right? 800-848-9222. In just a second, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame where we give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. It's 800-848-9222. You can start queuing up. There's three open lines. Uh, I did want to uh, give a quick update on the Paul Pelosi case because I know a lot of our listeners are very interested in that and following that. And a lot of people called yesterday thinking there was something more than meets the eye. Well, now the criminal complaint against the man charged with attacking Paul Pelosi, the 82-year-old husband, of Nancy Pelosi is giving us a little bit more information about what happened. And it seems to refute a few of the conspiracy theories that were circulating in the aftermath of the break-in. William Scott, the chief of the San Francisco Police Department, spoke to CNN about one of the things that so many of you brought up yesterday, which is that Paul Pelosi may have known his attacker. This is what William Scott said. There is absolutely no evidence that Mr. Pelosi knew this man. As a matter of fact, the evidence indicates the exact opposite. And again, we, you know, this is, it, it really is, is sad that these theories are being floated out there, baseless, factless theories that are being floated out there. And they're damaging. They're damaging to the people involved. They're damaging to this, this investigation. And, you know, people are running with this stuff. And whether they believe it or not, these theories can influence the way people think about everything that's happening here. So I will be clear on this. There is absolutely no evidence of that at all. So no that, evidence that he knew him. As a matter of fact, to the contrary. So that's William Scott. And there is an FBI affidavit, which includes an interview with the suspect, David DePop, And it uh, reiterates that. It debunks the claim that Pelosi knew the attacker, uh, that there was a third person that let DePape into the home and um, and some other things. DePape in the affidavit stated that he was going to hold Nancy Pelosi hostage and talk to her. And if Nancy were to tell DePape the truth, he would let her go. And if she lied, he was going to break her kneecaps. He said he was certain that Nancy would would uh, would not have told the truth in the course of the interview. DePape articulated he viewed Nancy as the leader of the pack of lies told by the Democratic Party. He also later explained that by breaking Nancy's kneecaps, she would then have to be wheeled into Congress, which would show other members of Congress there were consequences to actions. So uh, what happens next now is the Capitol Police is conducting a full review of the attack to determine what, if any, changes should be made to protect lawmakers and their families. Unfortunately, there are a lot of mentally ill people out there, and some of them could be violent. Hopefully, 
uh, if you're mentally ill and listening to us, you will not be violent. But you're still welcome to call us at 800-848-9222 as part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Jamie in Westchester. Um, so the guy that lectured you about feeding your cat, if I had to choose between uh, feeding a cat and a baby and it was uh, only one or the other, I'd feed the cat and I don't apologize. Joe in Ronkonkoma. Election day's a week away. Get out and vote. Early voting already started. If you're sick the way New York is being ran, vote for Lee Belden. He's a good family man, a veteran, and he's got my vote. John in Manhattan. There's a strong connection between between nose picking and dementia. So don't reach for the nose. Reach for a handkerchief. Rob on Staten Island. The only thing grosser than candy corn is when they grab it and don't put it in a separate bag with their dirty hands and throw it in your bag. Great. Stan in Brooklyn. Good morning, John. Um, where do you Frank. find the podcast between you and John R. Gambling? Um, you could go to uh, fmwabc.com, or if you just type in my name, Frank Morano, and John Gambling in Google, it should come up. In fact, uh, or if you email me, Stan, I'll email you several of our conversations over the last two years. Uh, Frank.Morano at wabcradio.com. 800-848-9222. Chris and Beth Page. Who opened the door that let the police in? Where are the police going to... Verify that. Who opened the door that let the police in? Why don't they know that? Uh, fair question. Peter in the East Village. She's a moron. She's a moron. And Doug in Manhattan. There's no such a thing as Post Office Box 177, third floor. Only street addresses have third floors. Fair enough. So leave third floor off. 800-848-9222. Charles is in Queens. A woman from the south lands at JFK Airport, and she sees three Hasidim dressed in their attire, you know, with the payers, the, the earlocks, and she asks the guy to pick them up. Who are, what, are, what is that? He goes, Hasidim. She goes, what is that? He goes, Hasidim. She goes, Hasidim too. What the hell are they? I See, the joke I always heard, the, the punchline is Hasidim, but I don't believe him. Uh, Charles, thank you very much. Hey, that about slams the lid on things for today. It's November, everybody. Uh, we've made it. we got an action-packed show tomorrow planned for you as well. Today's All Saints Day. I'm not sure if this is a holy day of obligation for Catholics. If it is, enjoy your time at church. If it's not, or if you're not Catholic, enjoy the fact that there's no alternate side of the street parking in New York, and hopefully whatever city you're in. Um, I'll be back tomorrow. You stay in touch. Email, Twitter, Facebook, and the like. Until tomorrow, Frank Moreno, good day. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.